I'm going to have uh, some of the viewers play a drinking game of how many times Matthias says, here's a tip. <laughs> during, during this episode, people are going to be like wasted as heck after that. So, so before we started this episode, I was like, "All right, man, tell me how to how to pronounce your your name and, and give it give it to me now because I'm not going to get it right." You mean my handle? Yeah, Avlidian Brun. Avlidian Brun, and and that means what? It it means like you want someone to fall down a well and. Dude, I don't know. Why do we have the weirdest handles, man? Mine is like some freaking like video game gun from when I was like twelve, and you're telling people to fall down a well. That's well, that's yeah, lovely, but, man. But there's there's a little story to that. It's like uh, that was like something that a friend of mine or an ex colleague of mine used to say as a as like an insult because he's from up north and apparently they say it there. Uh, and so I was, I was signing up for some service. I don't forget which one it was. It might have been Gmail, but it could have been something else too. And it, was like, <laughs> it might have been Gmail. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, oh, that's taken. Oh, that's taken. Oh, that's taken. So I just put that in. And it's like, you know what? This is never going to be taken anywhere. I'm sticking to it. Dude, that's that's freaking great, man. And so you named yourself. Yeah, in English, there's like, um, you know, go jump in a lake is what people or jump off a cliff or something like that. People will say um, yeah, yeah. that's hilarious that you put that as your name. Um, well, dude, welcome to the pod with that lovely start. Welcome to the pod. And um, thanks for coming Thank on. You. It's, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about podcasting is that you kind of get to catch up with people a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm kind of bad at, like, keeping up with all my Bug Bounty friends. And I haven't, I mean, we haven't spoken in, like, man, it's probably been almost five years. It, maybe yeah. maybe four years. Um, so how, how have you been, man? What have you been up to? Why, why haven't you been at the live hacking events? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's a long story. I got kind of burnt out, I guess, at around 2000. 20 or around when corona hit and yeah yeah the live hacking events stopped yeah um, and then i also had some other issues like in my life my relationship mm. wasn't going anywhere and we broke mm -mm. up and then instead of handling it i started playing world of warcraft oh, <laughs> so, classic classic move right yeah. there oh yeah, man so I, I found some interesting stuff in in like the world of warcraft. hacking world of warcraft yeah well they didn't let me do some stuff in like a add-on that I wanted to do, but you nice. wanted to do. But, yeah. <laughs> That's great, man. Well, you know, I, I will say the um, uh, the burnout thing is something that's real, 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 you know? Like yeah. pretty much everyone who's on the live hacking event circuit deals with it. And especially if you're, you know, you're doing every event for a little while like you were, um, it, it becomes a lot. Um, but you were, you were actually, did you... You came to Vegas this year and you guys won, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good comeback. Freaking, yeah, <laughs> now, oh, dang it. Move your head a little bit to the side. Is that two? Is that two belts that I good. see up there? Yeah. Dang so it, I need man. a new shelf. Freaking people, you know, for a little while, it was it was me and Franz with the, with the two belts. And I was like, yeah. all right, you know, I can, I can be... I can be happy with this. And now the number has, has grown substantially. And now I got to like get my shit together and, and get another belt. So 
Bummer, man. Well, yeah, I would have loved to have been in Vegas this year and seen you, but you know, such is life. And now we get to catch up here. So that works well. Um, yeah. So I guess 2020 burnout a little bit stopped yeah. doing bug bounty period for a while or what? Yeah, basically the only thing I did 2021 20, and two was like, helping some people who asked me questions. So I got like a couple of uh, collaboration reports. But other than that, uh, nothing. Yeah, dude, that, uh, that, that, that was a underrated revenue stream for me as a, uh, as a podcaster, because yeah. what'll happen is, you know, people will message me and, and like, let me just also put this out there for the people that are listening. I will definitely help with bugs but they need to be actual bugs, you know? They need to be actually good leads, right? So people will message me sometime and they'll be like, hey, I, I've got this, uh, you know, XSS I can't quite figure out, but clearly, you know, we're escaping the XSS context and there's a valid, you know, XSS here. We just got to like get around this WAF or we've got to like, you know, code golf in some, some exploit. Um, and I love that. And it's been a great, it's been, you know, people, I, I think on average, I've made like two or three K a month from like people reaching out to me since I've launched the podcast being like, hey, exploit this. So it definitely does help when you're, you know, well known for your exploitation capabilities. Yeah, I I want to give a tip actually about mm. collaboration. Yeah, and, and and also what I've been doing this past week with some friends. Yeah, I think that another thing that's super underestimated is to try to become maybe expert in this is the wrong word, but really knowledgeable about a specific technology or yeah. like 100%. development stack or some area, and then you can talk to people who specialize in like a couple of different programs and maybe they they can just like search their verbs and like yeah they use a blah 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 thing here and you can get like paid for that research across extra, all of the programs too yeah and and this is something that that um you know we've had nogly on the podcast a couple of times or well i guess we've had him at least once <laughs> um but there's more to come uh and and he you know he does a great job with this is like he's got an automation set up that's you know uh pretty much one of the best around. And, uh, you know, people will hit him up and be like, hey, I've got the zero day. And he'll just, you know, help everyone exploit it across all the all the programs and uh, help everyone, you know, sort of tie up those loose ends and get a, get a cut of it. So, you know, it's great on, on, the, on the distributor side and it's also great on the researcher side too. Um, and definitely, yeah, that's a, that's a great tip and under, underestimated way to make a good chunk in Bug Bounty, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The I, the the um yeah, it, it's <laughs> and and on top of that, you know, you get if you're doing quality research, you know, you get access to the research as well. You know, you you're you're doing quality research that you can release and it's good for, you know, publicity and that sort of thing. Um but the catch there is you've got to find something that's widely used. So, it's it's a little bit tricky because, you know, if you if you go down this rabbit hole and you research something and then it's not widely used, you know, you'll be like, oh, I found this crazy bug. And then there's like three companies that use it or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I've had, I've had a lot of those too. Like I, yeah. <clears throat> I found a, I, I found a pre-auth RC <laughs> in a open source project. Oh my that, gosh. Like, a, a company put out, which had uh, a bug bounty program. Yeah. But I couldn't find an instance that they were using it themselves. And what? Uh, yeah, so it was probably just some internal system 
or ban VPN or whatever somewhere. Yeah, so I reported it to them and they were like, oh, we don't think this is such a big deal. And I got like, not that much. How you know, do you think a, a pre-auth RCE is not a big deal? Hey man, <laughs> don't trust me. But I, I, put it, I put in like a signature in my automation there. Uh, but I've only, I've, I found a couple of them, but since it's patched now, like every time I see that pop up, I'm like, damn. Dude, that <laughs> so, sucks, man. You know, when I did like the Graf- edged sword there. It, it is. And when source. I did the Grafana bug in, um, in 2020, I had a um, pre-auth full read SSRF on Grafana that like popped me like 70 companies or something ridiculous like that. It was like, and, and it was just always straight to the AWS metadata too, because everyone always spins it up in AWS, right? Um, and I was like, okay, you know, I've, I've kind of sprayed this around and then I finally released it. And, and, um, you know, before I did, I really like, somebody told me like, Hey, I think it was Nafi. I think Nafi hit me up and was like, Hey man, um, I'm pretty sure GitLab has like an embedded version of Grafana in it. Right. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, and and it was vulnerable to that too. So you could like hit hit up, uh, you know, any GitLab instance that was publicly facing was also vulnerable. Um, so it's also, I think, another good tip for that is like if you can take take a piece of software and see if other pieces of software are um, are actually utilizing that as a part of their stack. Uh, you know, even if it's full applications like Grafana being embedded inside a GitLab, then sometimes you can pop an additional set of of phones there. Yeah, and it does like what the even better point, uh, yeah, or if you can manage to find it, is to find like insecure defaults or ways of setting it mm. up in an insecure way because then it won't, it probably won't be even patched. Yeah, and so now you're sitting on something that will will not like have an End of, end of life. Yeah, I dude. Guess. Yeah, insecure defaults is is huge, man. That would be, yeah. Looking into that and then spraying it spraying it wide is is a great idea. Um, you mentioned a second ago your automation setup, and yeah. so I've got it, you know, here on our little on our little uh, dock, our very our dock that all of a sudden became very very long as I've stalked you over the past five years <laughs> to to consolidate all of the content that you've produced down into uh, into one podcast. Um, but so I know you have a little bit of a origin with Asset Note, right? Um, yeah. You know, when Asset Note was just a baby, uh, you were kind of sort of involved in that. So I'd, I'd like to hear about that. And then I'd also like to hear about what your automation setup looks like nowadays. Yeah. So when it comes to Asset Note, and I guess the same is true for Detectify later, like, yeah, I don't think that anything is left of my contributions. Uh, like yeah, it, it yeah, evolved to like an actual product and everything. Um, but back in the day, let's say, what happened was that Chubbs made the first like jank version of uh, Asset Note and put it open source. And then that project kind of died. And I was interested in building something similar. So I found this project and I asked him just straight up, hey, is there any like pull request that you didn't merge or like code that you didn't commit? Can you can you do it? Because I'm gonna fork yeah. it and, <laughs> and do something with this. Yeah. Can I like, have any free code, yeah. please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, if there was bugs and you all to fix them, uh, can I? Exactly. Um, no, this is a great. Push. I love this question. <laughs> yeah. No, but then we it was like really excited that someone took an interest to it, I suppose, and we started building it together. Um. Until. Uh, until I guess 
he or we realized that it, it became an effective enough solution, I guess, uh, that could actually be turned into a real valuable product. Yeah. And, uh, so then we forked again, and I, I chose to keep my version, which is like, I rewrote almost all of it too. So now oh, yeah. it's like we converged and we did Whatever. Gotcha. Well, I know. I know that he credits you a lot with, um, you know, some of the momentum that he had with uh, with Asino in the beginning. I'm sure with that, um, you know, initial interest, sort of reviving the project, and then also, I, like, something about project man. I, I, you know, he was on the episode like, like there was some sort of like project management help they needed or something like that, and then you guys helped them out with that. I don't know what that was, but I, I it's it must feel great to be uh, a part of such a big you know thing because like I don't know I don't know if you feel the same way, but I have like so much respect for the people at at Asset Note, you know what they built technically, and also just to see Shubs, you know, and and the whole team really Sean as well, and 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 all them, you know, being in our hacker groups. And then going and building like this massive, you know, uh, product that is used by so many companies nowadays, and just kind of taking that entrepreneurial route. So that's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, for sure, it's awesome. I love shops and those guys. They're great people and yeah. hackers. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So your automation, you said you've mostly rewritten it. Um, yeah. What language are you using? What kind of stuff are you doing now in there that you're excited about? It's still Python and Postgres. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's just simple. I, I, I like simple code. So I, like the less complex it is, the more beautiful it is. And that goes for systems or code or networks or whatever. That's like my point of view of anything technical. Dude. So it's it just, it's, it has not, no, no auto scalability, no weird <laughs> shit. It just collects data. And that's about it. And does its job and sticks it in a database. I love that, man. You know, that that's really underrated. Um, you know, I've talked about it on the pod a couple times before, but I um I have I was in the recon game for a long time. And like he, here and there nowadays I'll kind of think about like, huh, oh, you know, maybe I'll go back to that real quick. And like, just kind of see if I can at least get my instance sort of spun up again and get some host monitoring in place and that sort of thing. And then I go back and I look at the code and I'm like, this is so freaking complex. And, and even, you know, even uh, one of the guys in the, the uh, Golden, actually, in the CTBB Discord, he, uh, he was asking me, you know, hey, you know, how do we deal with uh, wild cards, wild card subdomains? And how do we filter out, you know, the stuff that's not a wild card in, inside the wild card definition, right? And I, I gave him, <laughs> I gave him like this whole piece of code, which works. It, you know, in my defense, it does work really well, and and it does filter out uh, the wild cards quite well. But it's like it was like 500, 600 lines of code just to filter out a wild card, you know. And um, and so yeah, I, I think it's a struggle to keep your code that simple. And if you can, it's like so beautiful and helpful for automation. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and then. Um, like another tip there. I mean, maybe, like, maybe I'm not up to date with the recon game because people are building such advanced, awesome stuff. But mm. um, one thing that I think is might be underrated, and this is only based on that I found them, and I have mm. been surprised that like, why don't people do this? It's just yeah. that if you're gonna do headless browser stuff, like for screenshots, for example, mm. anyway, then you might as well all the the uh, 
network logs or the DNS logs? Because I've seen a lot of places where people have, like maybe it's not on GetSlash or maybe it's on some other page, but they, they will make some kind of external resource request, whether it's an image or like a script or something else to a domain that's either has a takeover or that's just like, you can just buy the domain. And Dude, what the heck, about. man? Freaking Matthias coming on the pod, being like, okay, okay, guys, you know, I don't know if this is up, up to par for the pod, but like, <laughs> and I've been doing this, I, I, I have been talking about this shit for like four years, and I have not once ever thought to do that when you've already got it loaded up in the browser anyway. All of the resources are already resolving. Yeah. Matthias, dude, that's genius. What the heck? Guys, go do this, all of you. Now, see, this is the problem, Matthias. You're about to learn after this episode because you say stuff on the pod, right? And then, you know, people actually listen to it and then they go yeah. do stuff and now your secrets are gone too. So I should, have, I should have warned you, you know, before this episode, but I appreciate you dropping that awesome tip because I'm sure that will lead to many, many takeovers and many, many bones for lots of targets. So that's a... That's a freaking great tip, man. Um, yeah, I want, I want to give tips. Like, it's a, it's a good challenge to just put stuff out there. I think Francis noted it too, but like, yeah, it's good to get get your secrets out there because then you need to get new ones, and that motivates you to do research again. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you both have that that mentality. That's really beneficial for me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, but on that point, though, there's there's different ways to. Uh, to publish your research too, yeah. I guess, because uh, I I'm not very good at writing blog posts, or maybe yeah. I'm good at it, but I don't do it. Uh, Freaking Franz just like so pumps them out, man. Like what the heck? Yeah, no, he's a beast. Like the same with uh, like writing reports. Like yeah, he he could be like one of those people. What are they called? Like when you're in court and you have to oh, type the, really fast. Yeah, I don't know what those things are called. Yeah. <laughs> he could be one of those if like this uh, bug bounty thing is going. Is it a stenographer? Yeah, 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 stenographer. That's it. That's the word. Yeah, dude. But he, I mean, it, it's crazy. And I was looking at, in prep for the episode with him, I was looking at, like, the history of research that he's kind of put out over the past, you know, forever. And... um and I missed, you know, I had like a full list of like eight or nine or 10. I was like, man, this guy puts out so much research. And then we get yeah. in the episode and he's like, oh yeah, I wrote about this and that blog and this blog and that blog that I didn't have in the list. And I was like, you are just like a freaking, you know, writing machine. So yeah, that's very impressive. And let me tell you, Matthias, man, podcasting is great. Can I highly recommend podcasting if you don't like writing reports? Because you can just get on the pod. You know, you don't have to do multiple takes or whatever, and you don't have to like refine your your thing like you do on YouTube. And you get to just sit down, chat, you know, be authentic with the people, and you know, you get that information out there. So maybe we'll have to make you like a like a reoccurring guest on the podcast or something. Yeah, maybe, maybe that sounds uh, great. I mean, another thing is like another benefit uh, yeah. of sharing is that if you're not very good at storing. Your information. I mean, yeah. you have it in your brain, obviously. Yeah. But uh, it's it's like you get an archive of your stuff. You don't forget yeah. it. Yeah. Go go back and if you if you can deal with uh, listening to your own voice, right? <laughs> like I yeah. I um I listen to the pod every single week, the the critical thinking podcast every week, just for like quality assurance purposes and just to like make sure it's hitting 
you know, the standards and that sort of thing that I want. And in the beginning, it was like nails on a chalkboard, man. It was like making me want to, uh, what is it? I've lead in Brune. It's making me want to jump in a well, man. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, um, and yeah, but after, after, you know, a couple episodes, I kind of, that kind of wore off a little bit and now it's not as uh not as terrible unless i laugh you know and then i'm just like what the heck is that laugh justin what are you what are you what are you doing um but yeah it does help and also when you talk about it and you and you teach it you know or you discuss it with somebody it concretes it a little bit more in your head and and we were talking about this you know before we, we we started the recording but we've all got that sort of technical context window of sorts right so like you deep dive a specific piece of content you know of of research and then like you're super excited about it you've got it all in your head and then if somebody asks you a question about that three months later it's like oh man i swear i knew the answer to this question you know so but if you get out there and you talk about it it sticks a little bit better yeah, I, I had that this just like yesterday, or if it was two days ago. Okay, so backstory: Franz and I have teamed up a, a little bit on, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Tishano and Jonathan Bowman. Oh man! Oh gosh, that combination, yeah. man! Holy crap! Yeah, we, we found good stuff. We started like last Friday or something. Mm. Um, but anyway, we we found something that looked like a DynamoDB uh, injection. Mm, yeah. And I, I was like, I should know this because this summer, so I'm helping out with uh, running and building CTF challenges for a Swedish CTF called Midnight Sun CTF. And I made nice. like a DynamoDB CTF challenge. Oh, did you really? So at the time I had like, at least to me, novel research and stuff to do with DynamoDB. Right, so, right. But now when it came up just a few months later, it was like, I have no idea <laughs> what that was. Yeah, dude, that's so discouraging. And then you're like, you know, all right, I got to like go back in my notes. And then you're like, ah, shit, I don't have any notes. And, and then you're like, you're just trying to piece it all back together. But the good thing is at least, you know, that that I think um, you you do have, you know, those neural pathways sort of primed of sorts, right? And and it does become easier to reaccess those once you've you've done it. But it is disappointing when you you feel like you should know something off right off the top of your head and it's not and it's not there. Um, yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. All right. All right. Let me get back to this. Um, let me get back to this this doc here. You mentioned something, you know, about about collaboration a second, you know, when we were talking about collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I think you did a great talk um, about this. Uh, and I'm trying to see if I can find the link to the YouTube. <laughs> I, I, I took like... Uh, like six screenshots of this YouTube video, and then I didn't actually uh, <laughs> save the video to my uh, to my doc here. So we'll link it down in the description below. But you did a, a talk at I believe it was an OWASP um, conference a while back, talking about <clears throat> about collaboration and mentioning that you know you this sort of um, concept of bounty effectiveness and how collaboration sort of affects that, right? You know, you increase the number of bugs found, you decrease the risk of duplicates, you, you, uh, you know, decrease the time taken because of how, you know, you're getting sort of double time, right? Um, And I love this concept, man, of like, creating and I, we were kind of talking about it last week on the pod with with uh joel and and sam even though they were kind of shitting on my idea of like you know trying to minimize bug bounty down to like a function of 
how many attack vectors or reasonable attack vectors is what I should have said that you try on a target, you know, over time. Um, but I, I just kind of wanted to brainstorm a little bit on this together. Um, this concept of like, how can we formula, formula, formula eyes turn into a formula, uh, <laughs> that, you know, bug bounty, right? And so I, I've got this concept around like taking, optimizing for time spent actually trying reasonable attack vectors. Um, and then you've got this concept of like calculating bugs found times risk of duplicates slash time taken or, you know, divided by time taken results in your uh, effectiveness. Um, have you had any sort of evolution in this formula or evolution in your bu bug bounty optimization journey over the past, you know, I think it was five years ago that you did this talk? Uh, I'm not sure. Like on a high level, I think that's still true because the end goal, at least for me with bug bounty is, is the same. The only things that have changed is that there, there's been some additional factors added, I guess, to mm, the mm. time taken. So for example, I'm going to take Hacker One, for example, uh, but I'm sure the other platforms do too. Like they try to encourage you to use like the CVS system. Yeah. Like, that takes more of your time and more programs are using uh, like drive services, which mm -hmm. unfortunately sometimes uh, takes more of your time. Yeah. Um, so those are like two sub parts of time taken that you can try to optimize too. Yeah, yeah, trying to trying to identify programs that will triage efficiently and, and are capable with their own products, I think is is definitely a big thing. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, okay? So mm -hmm. I, I, I hate to even bring this up again, man, because every single time I say anything negative about collaboration, people kind of like shit on me a little bit. Uh, but the risk of duplicates thing that you talked about here, you, you said that went down when you were working with, you know, Franz or working with any other collaborator, right? Um, the my, my qualm with that piece of your formula is that I think there would be overlap, you know? Everybody's going to find that basic IDOR, and instead of getting, you know, a 1 and X portion of the bounty, you're getting 1 of X divided by 2 now because you're you're collaborating with your, you know, your your friend and you're only getting half of one portion of that of that bug. So I feel like your risk of duplicates as it pertains to your actual bounty amount issued this is largely within a within a um, live hacking event context obviously because we're talking about dupe windows. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I feel like that kind of affects the output of your of your bounty. So how how do you think about that and and what is your what is your response to that? I mean, I guess I agree with you when, yeah. when it comes to things that you expect everyone else or everyone to find. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, it's still better to get 1% of something than 0% of something. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. And I guess also, you know, you and um, you and, and Franz and and you know your collaboration teams you know when they've been bigger in the past you guys are less focusing on i think volume of reports and more focusing on like okay we found this thing that just blew up you know blew up the whole 
program, right? Yeah. And you find these yeah. crazy RCEs, and then you're you, you know you're just splitting your you know 40k, 50k, you know two ways or or four ways or whatever, and that that feels a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that if you don't like duplicates, then you should go deep because yeah. like I I I started bountying again like uh, mm -hmm. March I think or if it was April this year, mm. and I've had zero duplicates and like around a hundred bucks. So. Wow, dude, man, you guys are tearing yeah. it up. I know I've been talking to Franz a little bit, you know, the, the program that you guys have been working on. Um, you know, I assume it's that program. Is, is that the one? Yeah. To, yeah. Um, it's like 95% of that program. I just, I cannot believe the volume of bounties you guys have pulled from that program this year. Like, unbelievable. Uh, it, it's, it's the most amount of money I've ever seen anyone earn in Bug Bounty. And that is uh, in in one year, and that includes like these recon gods out there that are just automating everything, um, and you guys are doing it manual. So that's kind of nuts. You you are doing it almost entirely manual, right? Yeah, I mean we have some program specific stuff that you, we try to automate. Like wow, okay, this yeah. this type of pattern seemed to emerge and at multiple places so we should try to, to look at for that automatically if we can with like some turbo intruder or something can so, you can you elaborate any more on that or your your lip sealed for now on that on that was specifics well uh, no not, sure, not, not, it, to, not to specifics but like like you don't need to leak your your secrets but like you know are you looking for routes are you looking for you know is it an authorization problem you know give the people a little juice i guess Actually, here's another tip for uh, yeah. like automation. And I know some people do it, but it's a good idea to have program or category specific signatures, let's say, or yeah. what's that tool called? Uh, so, with so, a bunch of YAML files. And oh, um, um, why can't I think of it right now? It's contagious, whatever you... Uh, nuclei, right? Is that what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like think of it as... Nuclear templates custom to that um, program, let's say. Hundred percent. Yeah, no, that yeah. makes sense. Uh, so, and I also think that this is something that yeah, I have a big problem with, like automatically repeating requests in Burp. It's a uh, someone can someone please make make a good Burp extension for that. <laughs> Okay, so hold on. There, there are some extensions. What, what do you mean by automatically repeating it? I With mean a specific like, mod modification. Yes. If if the request contains this, then just like give me the whole request. All right, dude. Re rewrite it with my Python or whatever code, and then send it. And then if it contains this in the response, like give me a heads up. I'm about to change your life, man. Uh, there, there is a there is a plugin called Autorize that that does this. And there's also no, another. It doesn't work for everything. Uh, it doesn't. Okay, so you you you've played around with this before? Yes, I tried that, and I tried auto repeater, and I tried there was a couple more, and none of them can just like give me the whole raw request. Let me make changes to it. And yeah, it. But, Dude, but I know that that mm. Burp, what is it called Montoya API has yeah. support for that. So yeah, it's that's like, now I'm using like a. There was someone in. Uh, Bugman forum who yeah. posted like a turbo intruder hack to it, I guess, that can just like monitor all the requests from proxy. And then you can actually uh, 
rewrite it. I can link to that. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. I, yeah. I let, definitely style, link but. to that. Well, if you shoot that over to me afterwards, I'll um, let me grab a yeah. notepad here. Uh, auto. But, but Turbo Intruder isn't perfect either because the Turbo Intruder's yeah. like output window is like not standard. No. Uh, Don't love that. So, so I, you know, I spent the whole day just trying to make <laughs> like a feel red. Dude, we need we need UI. freaking uh, ChatGPT to like ingest the Matoya API docs so you can just uh, do that. But also, I, I'm just gonna say, you know, and also I want to clarify on this pod. I, I I love Burp. I really do. I talk about Kaido all the time, and I talk about the problems of Burp. The Port Swigger in general, absolutely amazing company. The research they put out, the product is phenomenal. It's it's amazing. I also am a big fan of Kaido. Kaido is is one of the things that they're working on right now, I know, is pretty much the ability to, to do exactly what you just talked about. And, and it's just to, sh to have every request sort of shell out to a Python script or something like that. And I just think, wow, how beautiful is that? You know, how simple and beautiful would that be if like, because most of us can do basic coding anyway, right? If you're going to be, you know, using an HTTP proxy and stuff like that, sure, there are the exceptions of like people that really just are business logic people and just focus primarily on HTTP and that sort of thing. But um, most of us can like, you know, code in Bash or code in Python or something like that. And the ability to just shell out out, you know, to to Python and modify the request and then send it through and then alert on anything that, you know, comes back, that's going to be golden. And it's just going to be so easy to extend. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. And to, to, to me, I agree about ports. Yeah. And it's like, we have, we have like the kind of same issue with, yeah. the, the, I guess, the reversing community had with Ida and, and, and the X-rays, which is yeah. like, well, I guess... They're the best, so so they get to decide. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Have. So yeah. I, I I like I haven't tried Kato, Kato. Yeah. Um, but I like the concept of uh, um, competition in the space. Yeah, me too. And and um, I, I've got it open right now. I'm actually looking at it on my other monitor. And. Um, and yeah, I've switched my workflow over entirely to Kaido now. Um, there are still a couple things that I have to do manually and that are kind of bothersome, but they've made promises to me that they're fixing it, you know, next uh, next version. Um, and I've I've just found I found uh, well into the you know five figures range of of bounties in the past month with uh, with Kaido. So it's definitely working for me, um, which is good. And also, they they sent me a little. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble with them for for leaking this, but they sent me a little uh, a video of the search functionality that they're implementing, which has like a very um, uh, Wireshark esque uh, sort of query language that you can use, uh, and it's just very simple. You type it up in the in the you know in a search bar up at the top, and it just it works it works fast. It's it's clean and easy for you to to write you know compound queries and that sort of thing. And I'm just so freaking excited for that. Um, so that should be great. So you can open like a search window and then it searches through everything with that. Yeah, so it's like Logger Plus Plus. Yeah, well, it, it is. Yeah, and and but um, actually, I haven't used Logger Plus Plus in as much detail. Um, but the thing that I'm really excited for is the query language, right? Where you being able to, you know, you can just put plain, you know, text in there and it'll it'll search for it as well, you know, in the body or whatever. But also, uh, which is very useful. But also, you know, having being able to do compound queries and be like, okay, when the host header looks like this and this cookie is set in the response, you know, like you know that sort of thing. Um, it will, I think, will yeah, be really I really useful. miss that in Burp too. Like I. 
Yeah. Really wish they at least had like a group buy function. Oh yeah. Burp search. Yeah, yeah, no, for or, for sure. You know what? What I would like in a, like a attacking proxy or whatever mm. we should mm. call the tools. Yeah. Give me an API or like a data, database connection, something. Let me query the data that is yeah. in there. Don't make me export it to some, you know. Crappy XML-based format. format, and then yeah, dude, me, me too, man. And, and actually, um, I was I was fussing at uh, Saiten, one of the developers for Kaido the other day. I was like, please implement this feature, and he's like, dude, that's such a pain. And like, just code it yourself. And he gave me like, he said, all right, this, these are the GraphQL API requests that you need to do it, and just like you, you do this in the meantime until I get around to implementing this. And um, I haven't gone and done it yet because I've been busy with some stuff this past week, but. Once they release the docs for the GraphQL API as well that powers Kaido, whew, that is going to be big time helpful. Um, so definitely, definitely looking forward to that. Um, all right, man. <laughs> well, we we got down a, a little a little path there. Love uh, love talking about Kaido. Um, let's see where where do I want to go from here? Um, so. Before we get into some of the more technical stuff, because I want to ask you some questions about uh, mutation XSS and some XSS challenges that you've been putting out recently, um, I want to hear about Detectify and your experience with that. Because essentially, the, the story as Franz told it yeah. was, you know, this young whippersnapper comes into his uh, whatever like e-commerce company or whatever it was. And he's sitting in the corner, ARP spoofing everybody in the office <laughs> um, and doing hacking stuff. And then, you know, Franz walks up and he's like, wow, you know, this, this guy's a genius. And we got to let him do what he's, you know, best at, which is security related stuff. And, uh, you know, you guys started D Detectify together. And I'm sure that's a little bit of a misrepresentation of the story, you know, from my memory and from Franz's memory. But I want to hear it's a little bit. It's a little bit like golden edge from the story. But sure, sure. sure. I want to hear your side of it and tell me how uh, how you and Franz originally met. Because you guys are like the, in my opinion, you guys are the most prolific, like the most well-known hacking duo that just like destroys everything they touch, essentially, when you guys hack together. Um, and when you hack individually, too. So, you know, obviously, when you put it together, it's going to be be better. Um, so I want to hear about that origin story. Sure. So the origin of Detectify goes back to before that, actually. So oh, really? Ooh. Yeah, I, I can I can try to fast forward my origin story when it comes to hacking. Yeah. Yeah, please. So I met the Almroot, Frederick Almroot, mm -hmm. um, when I was super young, like we were like seven and eight years old or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we when we were 12 and 13, we started programming or trying to understand programming. Um, and we fell into analyzing um, like Windows VBScript uh, malware. Well, so okay, VBScript as you do. Was the, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, just, I don't know where fun. the idea comes from, but we did. And so the first programming language, like scripting language or whatever you should call it, that I, I learned was VBScript, actually. And mm. I I still remember to this day, that was like the first time I had this wow feeling that, that I still get today when hacking. Because Hell it yeah, was, man. It took, I think it took three days or something of just staring at this VBScript. And like, it was so foreign to me. It was just text. 
but then suddenly I, I understood like the concept of a variable. Oh man. And that's what I like. And wow. that's when everything changed. <laughs> that is when everything changed. But anyway, fast forward a couple of years, we start finding like yeah, hacking IRC networks and uh, war game sites and uh, like forums and stuff like this and starting learning IT security yeah, and web security. It was uh, somewhat, uh, how do you say? It did exist, but it was still kind of in, in its infancy if you compare it to today. Yeah. And, uh, and fast forward a little, little bit more, and the concept of defacements uh, started to, to be popularized, I guess. Yeah, uh, we're getting a whole you know web security yeah, history yeah. right now, man. Yeah, this is great. Okay, we're going so way back. Way we, back. We're getting to defacements. People <laughs> are like overwriting oh, websites and stuff. Okay, all right, hit me. Yeah, and then there was this like um, sites that uh, compiled. Uh, the Facebook, uh, like Stone Age was one sure. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we kind of, during that time, we had some weird insight or like it was from like the old old school hacker community where it's like read a fucking manual and like do everything yourself in some kind of way. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't use any like external, I mean, we used the operating system, of course, but we tried to build everything ourselves. There were, Dude, what the heck? Why are you care. having to specify that? <laughs> He's like, because if I say we built everything ourselves, someone in the comments is going to be, oh, yeah, no. did you solder that? What, what, what yeah, no, no, you're 100% right. No, I, I, yeah. I just love that that was how far down you went. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, we used the operating system, of course, but everything else was manual. That's that's sick. So so this is a great, you know, now that's a great thing to highlight, though, because that's one of the best ways to learn all of this stuff is like implementing it yourself. And then after that, if somebody's tool does it better, you know, use their tool. But if you, yeah. you having implemented it, you know, yourself will really assure that you understand everything about it. And that's something that I've done many times and, and why I don't really... Um, why I tell people to write their own automation stuff rather than using all of you know some of these these great tools out there. Sometimes you know at least in the beginning, uh, because yeah. it'll help you understand the core concepts and understand where optimizations can be made. So it's it's cool that you did that too. For sure, for sure, and I think that it's a good exercise for anyone to like take an RC and try to build an implementation of it. Yeah, and, and you'll and you'll come to realize that okay, this is just. Code like anything else, it's not magic. Yeah, hundred um, percent. But but in any case, we joked around about these you know, compilation defacement sites because a lot of people what they did was they went to like Millworm or similar places where mm -hmm. public exploits were published, and they just took it and like copy pasted it on a bunch of places. So we were like, yeah, well, that's not hacking. <laughs> Classics script kitty shit right there. We we can build a program that's better than that. Yeah. Uh, what's kind of the uh, Oh and, and that's Detectify. <laughs> yeah, that was like their absolute first version of Detectify. And it, it didn't even it wasn't called Detectify until So was this pre pre you this was pre you joining the company with Franz? It, it was, yeah. This how, was pre how old were you? At this point, we were 17 and 18. 17 and 18. Okay, gotcha. Nice. So you, But you've already yeah. been doing this for a while. When did you first start getting interested in IT security stuff? That was like 13 or 14. Yeah, yeah. Same same age here. So that, that's something you see pretty early. And, and I know you're like a 
you know, you're like a timeless elf over there. You yeah. still look exactly the same, you know, and everyone's like, oh, you know, yeah, he's like 18 when we, you know, when first met you, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's different. Um, and, and you've got a bunch of context on the early bug bounty sort of space and what it looked like when it first came out. And you remember being involved in that in the beginning. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you questions about that later, but first I want you to finish your story here. So, you know, you start building the early, early versions of Detectify because you're like, okay, we can make like a better version of this, um, you know, encode it ourselves where we implement our own, you know, exploits or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, how did that, how did that integrate with, with Franz and Franz's company or wherever you were at at the time when you started working with him? So we had a friend in the, our high school. Mm. I don't know how to translate that. Uh, yeah. But the school you go to when you're 18, when you graduate at 18 in Sweden. But oh. uh, <laughs> we had a friend who, who had a job at like Francis and his business partner's company oh, as cool. a programmer. So we were like, university? That sounds boring. <laughs> you can get Fuck a job that. already if you know programming. We, we know programming. Um, we can write VB script. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually, we graduated to VB.net during this time. So, Ooh, yeah. nice. And maybe hot take, I don't, I'm not sure. I still think that Visual Studio, not Visual Studio, but Visual Studio is the, is the best ID that I've ever used. And the, I'm sorry, what, what ID? Visual Studio. Oh, Visual Studio. Yeah, no, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I was a Vim boy for a long time. And, you know, obviously I still use Vim daily. But um, Joel sat me down one time when we were pair hacking. was like, all right, Justin, close everything. Install Visual Code, <laughs> you know, VS Code right now. And we're going to set some things up. And that changed my life. So, and, and even right now with the, um, with the WordFence uh, sponsorship that we did last week, um, you know, I've been using VS Code and I've been, I, there's like a, a con- way that you can hook into Docker containers that are running, right? And so, and it's like one click, it's so easy. And so you install the Docker extension, you know, and then it just shows all the Docker instances you've got up and you just click attach to Visual Studio Code. And now you're inside that Docker container modifying the 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 plugin, you, you know, code for, for WordPress inside that container. And it's like, oh man, this is so easy. I freaking love it. Yeah, no, no, for sure. We should, okay. Sorry, I have to make the distinction. No, you're but good. I, I meant I meant Visual Studio, and that is different to Visual Studio. Oh, dude, get out here! Get 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 out! No, you're off the pod now. What do you, what do you, what do you okay, mean, sorry, Visual sorry. Studio? <laughs> I, I can't even fathom that that was what you meant. What? <laughs> but but yeah, I use Visual Studio Code for like everything now. But it, when I was doing the coding in .NET framework, of course. Yeah. And it has an awesome. Or I haven't tried it for a long time now, but. I really like the debugger in there, IntelliTrace, I think it's called. And you ah, can yeah. do like, you can just jump around in threads and you can like go into a thread and like uh, drag and drop the program counter and like change stuff. It was good fun. That's awesome. But anyway. No, that's we, cool. All right, continue, continue your story. Sorry. Yeah. So we started working um, as developers at Francis company, I guess. And we also had discussions. I don't know how it came up. Let's just say that we were in a corner and doing ARP school. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Um, and uh, we presented the scanner. To... Actually, we had, <laughs> it's pretty funny. The first time we were going to demo the scanner, France built like an application and he, he like uh, 
purchase this implant and it's equally injected somewhere. Uh, and we had made some like stupid change to the scanner like a, a few, like a week before that. We're like, oh, we, we, wouldn't it be funny if uh, you could play videos inside of it? And then you like, basically, yeah, I don't know. It was, so we what? basically Did you broke like the whole Rick thing. roll him or something like that? No, we broke, we broke it. So we're like, oh shit, uh, we should have oh, used no. motion control. Uh, but we can rewrite this. <laughs> So oh my we wrote gosh. The, we wrote the whole thing and uh, it didn't find the bug. Yeah, well, the, the purpose of it was not to find bugs that, you know, exist in the, or at least as far as I understand it, it's not like crawling endpoints looking for SQL injection. It's like... Oh, it was. It was that. Oh, it was that. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So we, we were thinking of competing with like this big, I think one of them was called like IBM Rational App Scan, okay. like super enterprise products, was, which was doing basically that. Uh, but there wasn't any players that we could find at least in the, like the low medium sized space. Mm. So that was like the original pitch. Um, but then it's like shifted um, through the years. So now it's more, they have this uh, monitoring thing and not much. From the, but th back then it was. Yeah. But then. It, we talked with France and his his uh, business associate, and it was like, okay, we'll we'll, we'll found a company together. Wow, that's awesome, man! And so then, so, yeah. the from there, you guys, you know, launched Detectify, and and are you still involved with that product, or are you kind of hands off ish now? I'm super hands off. I okay. if there's some research that I think can be implemented, the product I submit it with, sure. via the crowdsource platform. Oh, so you just yeah. like use the product, you know, as a researcher. Yeah. And, and yeah. like every now and then I'll, I'll visit the office and stuff, but yeah, but I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just some guy now. <laughs> so, so, I mean, let me ask then, you know, did you exit that company like intentionally uh, or did, is there some reason you, you don't want to work at, you know, at, in a, in an entrepreneurial role? Or, or are you in an entrepreneurial role now? You know, what are you, what are you doing for your for your primary income source? So there was two questions there. Yeah. Like, okay, let's see if I can finish the story. Oh no! <laughs> and I cut off your story too. All right, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we start building Detectify. We make some decisions to build it like a traditional startup at the time. Oh, and at some point, uh, bug bounty as a concept stopped. In right. like web space, space uh, started popping up like Google and like Facebook and PayPal and some others uh, had programs uh, which which paid money and a, a bunch of others had which paid like T-shirts or sure, other weird sure. stuff and uh, yeah we we saw that as an opportunity to get like a foothold on bigger clients because if we could have a blog post saying like oh we had Google. Then maybe it's okay that we don't have Google as like a reference customer per se, and uh, yeah, that actually did work. Yeah, we see that time and time again in the bug bounty world. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of like a, a, a two-purpose uh, thing with bug bounty. Uh, and so me, France, me, and uh, Albert all started doing it um, back then. So, so yeah, that was a fun time. No platforms. 
and it's the wild west <laughs> yeah dude that that I, i've got a bunch of questions about you know sort of og bug bounty stuff and you you mentioned you know you made some predictions about bug bounty which i think were really accurate um you know in a talk a couple of years back so we'll swing back to that in a second um but yeah so i guess ha have you considered full-time bug bounty or are, you know, do you want to be an entrepreneur? Do you want to work for a company? You know, what does that decision look like for you as somebody who's clearly skilled enough in bug bounty to make it work, you know, full time? So I did try full time bug bounty actually yeah. for three months just as I left the tech park. And yeah, like I left the tech park because I didn't like the way the company was going, mm. become too enterprise, too American startup y. Mm -hmm. And it was just some decisions that I, didn't feel like it was going right. So I decided, well, I, I'm going to work. I'm going to do something else. Or sure. Actually, I decided I'm going to do bug bounties <laughs> instead. Nice. Okay. And, and I did for like three months yeah, until I just found myself one day like, what day is it? Why don't I care? Yeah. I need to get some structure in my life. <laughs> 100% man. Yeah. So, and uh, like, there's some people who can do it and like props to you. But ever since after those three months, I've been, I've had like a part-time employment. Uh, so, I, so I've been working as a traditional pen tester. I've been mm. working with uh, like uh, security training. I've been working like blue, blue team also. Oh, wow. I had them, done, long, done like some freelance projects, uh, but it's all, always been something to keep me at bay. Yeah, no, that, but, that yeah. makes a lot of sense, man. I mean, the structure thing is one of the hardest things about full-time bug bounty. And like, especially for the people that have the skills to, to make it, to make it actually work from a financial perspective, like they almost all have the tendency, myself included, you know, to just dive into it head first, like no, you know, uh, no restraint, you know, and just, you know, wake up and be like, wait, what, what day is this? You know, you know, you know, all, all I can think about is X, Y, Z, you know? Um, and so that's definitely one of the most common, common pitfalls, uh, that you, that you see. And it's, it, as you pointed out, it's, it's really unhealthy <laughs> and it's one of the things you got to beat if you want to do it, you know, full time in the long term. And, and, you know, it's like you pointed out, it's something that you need to shut off you know, and you need to go back to part-time employment or full-time employment if you can't, because it's just too destructive, you know? Um, and so I'm glad you had that, that wisdom to go down that path. Yeah, no, for sure. That's, uh, I might try again at some point when I'm older and wiser, but, uh, <coughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of, um, like, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's like that. So, yeah. And I, I can also like, if there's like a hacking event coming up or like a new program or something that I'm super interested in, I can just take time off and then, and, and be a degenerate for like a couple of weeks and then go back to. Yeah, exactly. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, man. And I think at some point, you know, maybe I'll brainstorm a little bit about this afterwards, but I know that there are a couple people that I know that are doing full-time book bounty that are still struggling with this whole thing. And, and I am too, you know, I mentioned a couple weeks back on the pod, how, how, um, you know, how burnt I felt and like, you know, trying to restart 
that passion for hacking after go going away from it for a little while to do some traveling and to do some other things. Um, so there's lots of struggles that full-time bug bounty hunters have, and I'm thinking maybe I should create like a like a little support group or something like that in the CTPB podcast Discord for anybody who's who's thinking about doing full-time bug bounty because uh, it is definitely a a challenging environment to be a part of. Yeah. It's yeah. no bug bounty union. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's something everyone's talked about for years. Um, <clears throat> and actually, yeah, I, I would be interested to see if anybody actually tries to, to tackle that project as bug bounty continues to grow and it gets attention from non-bug bounty hunter, you know, people, right? You know, when people like lawyers and, and uh, you know, business people are looking at the industry and it, it, there's opportunity there, I think. Um, uh, so... Yeah, definitely be interested to, to see where that goes. Um, sort of on that note, I want to go to some thoughts on Bug Bounty and, and, and history of Bug Bounty and some predictions you've made uh, in the mm -hmm. past about Bug Bounty. And then, and then we're going to uh, dive into some technical shit. Um, okay, so first question I had. Back seven years ago, I, I had to dive into the, uh, into the, into the archives for this one. You said something along the lines of this in a, in a bug crown interview. You said, now I look for programs to hack on, but in the future, we will see that programs being the ones to search for hackers to hack on their program, right? Um, because there's just so many programs now, and there's a, there is a, there's a lack of uh, talent out there <laughs> in the bug bounty industry still, and a lot of programs are sort of having to vie for attention, which is why we get our inboxes blown up every single day with like, you know, this company's offering a, you know, whatever promotion and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you nailed that prediction on the head, you know, years back. And I'm wondering if you have, and I, I know I'm putting you on the spot, so, you know, no is a perfectly valid answer to this. Do you have any thoughts on where the industry is headed in the future for bug bounty, um, having seen it from the beginning, you know, 2012, you know, when the first when the first sort of programs launched and that sort of thing, up to today, where we've seen sort of a flip of the tables in this regard. Um, yeah, do you have any any thoughts on on where it'll go or any predictions you'd like to put on the record right now? I think the I think there will be even more competition for yeah. uh, bounty hunters. So I think that the bounty, average bounty amounts will probably increase. And I think that more programs will uh, attempt to make an effort to market themselves. Still, it's like the same prediction, but even more. Same, same position. So you're thinking it's gonna, still going to continue to grow? Yeah, because the thing is, like whether the platforms like it or not, skilled manual labor is not scalable. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That, and that's what it takes at the problem. end of the day. You know, you know, pe people can do automation stuff and you'll find bugs and that sort of thing. Um, and that's great. And, and we need that. But also at the end of the day, those are never going to, you're never going to find that weird little like you know, as Franz said in, in his episode, that weird little edge case if statement that I had to, you know, deduce from like three hours of playing with an endpoint that just destroys the whole company, um, you know, via automation. That's just never going to happen. Um, and, and I also hold the position that I don't think that'll happen with AI either. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I think it will continue to grow, just like yeah, just like I, you said. Yeah, like 
I think that there is some risk that is like non-zero that the bug bounty industry or concept as a whole taking get into trouble due to some legislation. Like that's also a risk that I have thought about in the what, past. What do you mean? Like, like, oh, now this counts as exporting uh, cyber weapons. You can't do that anymore. You can't do that to, from uh, the EU to the US or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, like, oh, that's legal. That is a big risk. That is something that I hadn't really thought of. And also, I, I was also kind of tossing around this idea um, a while back. And I guess I'll just kind of put it out there on the pod now because I think, I think it would be challenging to get this through. But I've thought about seeing if you could qualify individual vulnerabilities as intellectual property and then have a, like a rate at which you can donate that intellectual property. Uh, the idea would be that bug hunters pay a lot of taxes, right? Um, mm -hmm. And how awesome would it be if we could hack on nonprofits that don't have the money to pay normal researchers anyway, donate intellectual property to that company in the form of a bug report, and then receive a tax write-off from that company for a mm. standard vulnerability amount, you know, for a critical 10K, for a high, you know, 5K or whatever, and um, use that to offset some of this massive tax burden that we've got as as hunters. Yeah, no, that was, would be awesome. Yeah, we gotta we gotta look into that. But th th that's a that's a that's an interesting point, man. About about um about exporting cyber weapons. I need to I need to go <laughs> look into the the risk of that because at the end of the day, you know, you, we've already seen that with with China, right? China China already put a thing out that says like, all right, researchers, you can't like like uh, participate in like Pondone or something like that. You've got to do the the inside of China Pondone where all of the the bugs go to the government, right? Um, at least that's what I've heard. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely risk of that sort of propagating, I think. Yeah, and it's and like the same is true for like researchers from those countries. Like I'm th thinking about these Russian people who suddenly got kicked off of platforms because like the sanctions. sanctions yeah. No, that was the same thing. Like something happens in the geopolitical world that you had nothing to do with, but it can affect you. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I, I hated the way that that they dealt with that situation, um, and I don't know whether that actually got reversed or not because I meant to look into it and I don't remember off the top of my head. But I know at one point, Hacker One was like, "Okay, no bounties for people in Russia, and we're donating them, all of them." And I'm like, "What? <laughs> like you can't, you can't? You're just gonna donate that money? You know, like?" No, that's not how, how that works. You know, it, it, if the sanctions were in place, that's fine. You can't pay it out, but leave it in the HackerOne account, at least, you know. Um, and so I don't know if they went back and fixed that. But if it not, that's a, that is very concerning. Um, and so, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely sure. some risk yes. there. Unfortunate Indeed. situation. Um, okay, so I guess... The, the other question that I had here was, what are some ways Bug Bounty has changed from the beginning of 
you know, bug bounty. And obviously it's changed a ton with the, with the, with hacker one and bug crowd and integrity, you know, sort of coming on the scene and creating that sort of middleman rather than just submitting it via email form to, you know, Facebook or Google or whatever. Um, even though we do see some, you know, programs sort of moving again away from that, you know, with, uh, uh I think Hackforce, Salesforce launching their own thing. And, and um, you know, obviously Facebook is running their own program in conjunction with some of the big, you know, middlemen. Um, so that's cool. Uh, but are, are there any any trends you can see across bug bounty history? Because we, we, we have few, few guests that have been involved with this from the very beginning like you, you know, over 10 years ago. Um, any trends you're seeing or any things you want to highlight in bug bounty history? I'm gonna try and make an effort, not be too negative. I think I think that's like like a true stereotype of hackers too. Like we we love finding problems. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it sounds like you're so negative, but I try to find the, like the positives too. Yeah. So the positives is like the platforms introduced. Yeah. Like that's so so much better. You don't need like weird Google alerts and, and trying to find out who has a program, who doesn't have a program. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's awesome. And also like the standardized uh, reporting too. Like, okay, everyone, you can upload files. It's on the platform, you have a markdown, great. Um, so most of the like core functionality for hunters of, of the platforms, I think has been an awesome, awesome change from from the beginning. I also think that in general, bounty amounts have uh, gone up. Mm. So like the first RCE I found, for example, which it was, I might be lying now, but it, I think it was, okay, it was one of the first at least RCEs found sure. the but that was like $500. And back then it was like, damn. $500. Nice. Yeah, but this is ten years ago too. So the you know cost of living and inflation and that sort of thing has gone up. Do you, is it your opinion that? Well, I mean, I guess it hasn't gone up you know a hundred times, and you know you can see some huge payouts for for um, you know RCE nowadays. Yeah, no. Um, so I, I, do you I think, think it's outpaced it? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't think that it's just following inflation. Uh, I think that it has gone up due to not entirely do it thanks to the platforms. Yeah. But we'll get to that. Supply and, uh, supply and demand as well, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like competition of uh, hunters, I guess. And also, like, the whole concept of bug bounty becoming more accepted, I guess, uh, on, like, uh, higher levels within organizations. So it's an easier sell today, probably, mm. than, than it was back then. Yeah. So maybe you'll get bigger budgets or, like, actually have a budget for it at all which is amazing too i have to say because like and and obviously you know people point this out all the time if a program is paying two million dollars a year one of some of these big companies two million dollars a year is like you know junk change you know like find a penny pick it up on the ground you know to some of these big big companies but um a lot of these companies they're just writing a blank check for it you know they're, they're saying like all right you know that pay what you need to pay to you know, because the researchers find stuff, and I I think that's that would have been such a hard sell in the beginning. So I'm thankful to all the people that sort of paved the path for that in the past, because um, 
you know, I'm definitely seeing that become more normalized now. And I think we'll see that even go further in the future. Uh, and that, that's, yeah, that's a sure. steep slope for sure. I, I think that if you can manage the time needed for handling reports and like privacy and stuff, like the value add is through the roof for a bug bank, I would say. Yeah. Um, if you get, if you find a way to get good people to have a look at it. Yeah. But, but I want to say also, like now I say something good about platforms. Now okay. I'm super all right. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. One change that has been extremely negative, I think, is that platforms, I, like I've never purchased a founder program, but I assume that the sales factor on the platforms say like, okay, this is the standard program. And this is how much uh, medium is. This is how much uh, high is. This is how much critics. And that's freaking bullshit. Yeah. Like, why are they telling clients, like maybe million or like billion dollar clients? Billion, like, yeah. It's okay. It's okay to pay $1,500 for a critical. No. And, That's ridiculous. And you can be, you, there's some like cop out argument there where, where like, oh, but it, it starts at $1,500. But in reality, like most of them just pay the number that is there. So the fact that Bounty Platform suggests that to customers, it's, it really annoys me. And it has annoyed me since they started doing that. Yeah. I, no, I, I think 100%. that standard amounts for per severity doesn't make sense for most critical bugs. Especially like what, what we were talking about, you know, with the company size as well. You know, these are billion dollar companies sometimes, you know, and and they're paying $1,500 for a crit. It's ridiculous. Um, so definitely would like to see a little bit more of a push from there. And I think from the researcher side as well, I've thought about because yeah, I should write this down because you know critical thinking has a position where we can we can talk with um, uh, the people about things and try to influence change and try to you know guide the culture in a specific direction and I think it would be interesting to have some standards some like bug hunters standards essentially right and say like okay listen if you are if you've ever found an RCE. You know, or, or if you've ever, you know, you know, reached some certain standard when you're in training, it's whatever, you know, it, but when, when you feel like you're actually serious about this and you're like, okay, I'm a capable enough of a bug hunter where I'm going to start holding some, you know, dignity or whatever, then these are our standards for bounties. I don't look at programs with a medium above, less than a thousand. I don't look at programs with crits less than 10K you know, or something like that, right? That's kind of where my standard kind of sits right now. And I would like to kind of, you know, get a get, and this is sort of a union-ish thing of sorts, but like get some of the top hunters and say, okay, this is where, this is a summary of where our positions lie. And I want to make sure that you all, you know, in the, in the other side of the bounty world, understand that. So that could be an interesting thing. What are your thoughts on that? And I also want to hear your personal standards for where your, you know, low, medium, high crit should lie if you're going to look at a program. Well, the thing is, I understand some like counter arguments or like if I play devil's advocate, like a tenta or, or like a $50,000 budget is still $50,000, even if the, comp the whole company's revenue is two billion. Yeah, um, that's true. So that's like one thing that I can that I can kind of understand. But and the second thing is like, 
it needs to be context dependent because if it's like a non-profit, like you say, or mm-hmm. some s- small business, then like then that could make sense. Mm. But uh, I think that I think that they should make a best effort to to put out what they feel like the low, medium, maybe highs could be worth to them. And I think that the critical should always be will decide on the spot. And not defining a minimum? Yeah. And especially not defining a maximum. That's that's tricky, man. I hmm, That's a hot take, dude. I don't know that I would hack on a program that says we'll define we'll decide the critical unless they had sort of a track record of saying okay we've paid criticals 20 grand 30 grand 40 grand 50 you know like that sort of thing because if they say like it's a critical and we're going to give you you know 3 grand then that would feel real bad yeah but like if you don't trust the program then uh... How can you take those numbers seriously anyway? And also, it's like context dependent within the program too, you know, because it's like, oh, I got a shell here. Okay, it's a test box. There's no data, nothing of value here. But yes, technically, if you put the CVSs in, it is a crit. And then it's like bad to the other way too. Yeah. And I, I only think that stand, standard amounts make sense for bugs that will have the same or the same ish impact. So an XSS, it can be the case like, okay, an XSS under blood.com will always have ish this impact. So, okay, we can put, put a standard on it. Doesn't matter if it's this subdomain or this subdomain or this API or this parameter, yeah. it's the same. But for crits, it's like almost always different. Yeah, so how would you, if you were on the other side of the table, how would you, decide how much a crit is worth to your organization? I know that that's a tricky question. We like to, we yeah. like to ask the tricky questions here on the CTV podcast. I should <laughs> no, have given you a, a heads up. I've been asking you to prophesy about the bug bounty you know, industry. I've been asking you, putting yourself in other people's shoes. You know, So I know, I know this but isn't a, the easiest thing, but yeah, give me your thoughts. One thing you could do is, like it depends on... If you're just starting out and have no data at all, then you can't really do it. But one thing you can do is like, based on the previous year or whatever, like this is how many criticals we expect to get. And given that the budget is this, we can have a crit budget within that budget. So like 10% of that or Mm. something. Um, But you can also try to evaluate like what the cost of an if of an attacker exploiting it would be too, you know, in terms of like if you have SLAs or if you have GDPR fines, like GDPR fines, yeah, or some uh, um, some other stuff. But that's like, yeah, there are some hard costs you can calculate pretty good, like with GDPR. But when it comes to alternative costs, it's so difficult. But like, okay, what what about brand damage? Mm-hmm. What's what's that worth? So mm-hmm. much money, dude. <laughs> yeah. And given how little companies seem to be affected <laughs> when they get hacked, I guess not much, but 
Well, you know, it's common though. You know, that that's the problem is like, it's been, I guess, normalized of sorts. And the average person isn't saying like, okay, well, clearly, I, I think also there could be a problem with um, cybersecurity reporting representation. So, you know, we can hear, okay, you know, Facebook got hacked or whatever. And, and, and someone, and it could be like, you know, some freaking Matthias and Franz shit where you like, you know, reverse this thing. And it's like crazy RCE that like the best people in the world could have never find except for you guys, you know, and, and they got hacked that way, which is in my opinion, pretty much unavoidable. Right. Or it could be, there's a numeric IDOR on the homepage that allows you that leaks password hashes, you know, like, you know, and, and the difference to the average, you know, cybersecurity news listener is nothing. And, and the, and so I, I wonder if there's a niche sort of reporting market for something like that, that would actually tell people like, Hey, this is, essentially negligence, right? That the company didn't do what they were supposed to do. Or this is like pretty much unavoidable because of how security works. Yeah, and like, here's the kicker. Most of the time, it's going to be shit that isn't even in scope in bug bounty. Yeah. Some some person got fished. Some person reused the password. That's true. Well, yeah. Man, it's, it's a scary... It's a scary a scary world out there for this sort of thing, man. It really is. Um, and there's so many, one of the things that I love about bug bounty is it's so tangible. You, you get what you pay for with bug bounty, you know, like you're never paying a report where you're not making a change, which is great. And so unlike anything else in the security industry, that's like, you know, pay us 15 K a month to run this tool, you know, or, or, or whatever. And who knows what it actually does or like, you know, we tell you that this is the results or whatever, right? Um, but bug bounty is exactly what you pay for. So I think a bug, bug bounty program is the best way to sure up your technical environment. But there needs to be some serious investment made into securing up your your personal environment as well, you know, your your human environment. And that's what I, I you know, I like that people are doing with the, the whole... Um, keys that you put into your computer. I can't remember the name yeah, of them right now. Keys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you've got that and it like validates the website that you're on. So you can't get like evil proxied, you know, evil nginx, you know, that sort of thing too. So I think there's, there's definitely a big, a big area there. And I think programs that, you know, people that have bug bounty programs should absolutely have already implemented that in their organization, because we all know the easiest way into an organization <laughs> is to fish someone. Um, yeah. So, no, no, for sure. Like, I wouldn't recommend to anyone to like take the entire security budget and put it on back bounty. Yeah, that's 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 very different. Um, Matthias, this has gone a little bit long already, and we haven't even got into some of the good stuff. Do you do you have a, a hard end, or are you are you free for a little bit? No, no, no. We can do it. Okay, I'm awesome. just more nervous. Like uh, for the listeners and stuff, I don't want to take up people's. No, dude, stuff. dude. You know the last response we got to the Franz episode was like, "This is amazing." Two and a half hours of you know ramblings. This is amazing. Oh. So, um, oh, yeah. you know. Okay, let me say that. Uh, okay. Just put it on like one point twenty five speed. Exactly right. You know that's <laughs> I listen to all of my podcasts on two or two point three speed, and. You know, when I go back to normal speed, I'm like, why does this person's voice sound so weird? 
you know like <laughs> it's like this is where does smurf go yeah exactly exactly um all right man so i think all right well we've gone down the whole path of all almost all of the stuff that i wanted to cover from the non-technical side but i will ask you one more thing okay and joel is in here today joel has got a new cat so he is uh dealing with some baby kitten craziness this morning um and I wanted to make fun of Joel a little bit. I've even got a note to myself in the document, make fun of Joel here um, on the topic of nerd snipe ability. Now, Joel is a great partner for me in, uh, in hacking and in the pod for so many reasons. But one of the primary reasons that I love him is he is nerd snipeable as heck. You can tell, you can say like, Hey, Joel, I just really don't understand this thing. Like, what, what does this mean, Joel? And then he has like a obsessive, like, oh, let me, I'm going to figure that out right now, you know, <laughs> sort of response to that. It's this great concept of nerd snipe ability. And you mentioned that you got nerd sniped by a tweet that I did a while back on, um, on XSS stuff. And I'm wondering, do you consider yourself a particularly nerd snipeable person? And do you think that is a weakness or a superpower in your own sort of bug bounty journey, but also, I guess, knowledge journey in, in security? I think, yes, I am. And I also think it's a net positive. Yeah. But the thing is, like, nerd snipe ability doesn't always uh, only apply to good stuff, like learning IT, IT security stuff. Like, I have the same thing with, like, I got nerd sniped into World of Warcraft, World I guess. of Warcraft, so, yeah. Yeah, I need to stay away from non-productive stuff that can get too interesting yeah so that's 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 good to hear you know i i think i think at the end of the day it is a net positive because you do get that hyper focus um but i also know that there are a lot of struggles with that come with that too um yeah yeah no i uh it's strange like when i the same when i'm hacking I, i love understanding how things work it's it's awesome to go from what the hell is this black box until I I understand what it does and I know I know exactly why you wrote the code like this and I would do it too if I didn't think about this and that's why there is a bug here. Yeah, um, but but the way there is is sometimes like frustrating and it's, it's yeah no it, it's strange like sometimes. Like if my girlfriend's at home or if I'm sitting somewhere, I, I, I keep like excusing myself because I'm like swearing and like, God damn it. And like, <laughs> I just copy and paste it. Like, why did you select that extra space? Like, like I'm really like. Do you talk to yourself out loud? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So I'm always like, oh, no, I'm not angry. I just, it's just this thing and it needs to. I need to bend it to my will. Hey, dude, yeah, <laughs> you know? and that that's such a great way of saying it too, bending it to your will. And I think that is so much what happens with bug bounty. And I think that's another way to classify researchers is there, there are researchers who will bend the application to their will. And there are researchers that will look at the application and find problems that exist in it just, you know, authentically by looking at the application, right? You know, it's not like, I've got a goal and I'm going to make that goal happen. It's, it's, I'm going to find the problems with this application based off of threat assessment. Both of those researchers are incredibly needed and high value, right? But lately I've been doing the bend, bend it to your will thing. Like I went into a live hacking event. Um, This is London actually. And I said, okay, 
I'm doing something a little bit different this event. I'm going to pick one thing that I want to have happen, and I'm going to make it happen. And I, I sat down, and it actually only took like three to three or five days out of the two-week you know, prep period, right? Um, and I, I made it happen. And it's just like, ah, oh, I love this. You know, like it's just nice. so, it warms the heart, right? Um, so when you're, when you're going deep and you're really bending the application to your will, I think there's a lot of really good um, emotional payoff for that sort of thing. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I agree. Like it, one of the bad parts though, is like sometimes I get too much in a, in a rush, I guess, to get to the go. So I'm like uh, not documenting enough my files name one two three for yep like my burp tabs are everywhere <laughs> my Chrome tabs uh, and also like I'll I'll catch myself like okay I'm gonna go get coffee and then like I don't walk to the coffee machine I, I like skip the run I'm like yeah what am I doing yeah. I, I don't I'm not in a rush. <laughs> <laughs> that's great dude i love that or and then you, you you know you run to the coffee machine you pour the coffee you know you get back as fast as you can without spilling it you set it on the desk don't even drink it get back to the thing yeah. right you know like yes. and it's it's freezing cold by the time you take the first sip um so no i totally get that and it's so funny man you know one one two three dot txt asked if dot txt i think it was cosman the first guy that said that on the pod but it's really funny how so many of us are having that you know, be a problem. And this is something that I'm actually really looking forward to in the AI space is like, can I have an AI assistant that will just organize stuff for me, right? Like how yeah. helpful would it be if, you know, you were in Kaido and you like send a, uh, you know, a request to repeater or something like that. And it like smart named it for you or something like that, right? By looking at the request and, and yeah. or, or like, you know, you, you create asif.txt and it, and it says, okay, astiff.txt, and then in parentheses, it says notes on XYZ target, right? You know, like th that sort of thing would be so helpful. Um, and so that's something I'm really looking forward to in the AI space. I think that'll be, I think that'll be here before long with the rate at which people are going after AI <laughs> startups right now. Um, yeah. I, can I give another tip? Yeah, actually, dude, dude. I love the, just, yes. Okay, so... One recommendation I have when it comes to documentation and knowing what the hell you did yeah. is um, how should I fix this? Okay, just if you have some startup script or when you're opening Burp or your tool of choice, Kedo, just I recommend sending everything through there and then doing the filtering in the tool itself instead of having like filters in the uh, in, in like your proxy extension, etc. Because then you you have everything. Nothing can just vanish and, and, and go missing. And yes, it will require like more RAM and resources, but it has helped me so many times um, by doing that. And also, the first thing I also do in the in my startup script is I SSH into one of my boxes. But you can also send a request through. Burp. Maybe someone has talked about this already. Yes, so you know, like, this is what my IP was, my external IP was at the time. Yeah. In case you need it for later, dude. For, uh, that, that's great. And yeah. and you you mentioned that in the in the talk, and I, I did find the talk by the way. It's how to differentiate yourself as a bug bounty hunter, um, and I will link that in the description. 
Uh, but you mentioned that in there as well, saying like, never, ever, ever let go of your data. Just, just yeah. you know, storage is cheap. Go to the store, get an eight terabyte, you know, external hard drive, drop those burp files onto it, you know, uh, after you're done. And then someday when you're like, oh, I've got this zero day, you know, that affects everything that has the perimeter, you know, X, Y, Z, one, two, three. You just go to that that whole folder. You set up like a rip grep, and you just say, "All right, give me everything that has X, Y, Z, one, two, three in it." And now you've got years of data sort of piling up there. Um, it's awesome. I definitely do that. I've got an external hard drive right in front of me that has over a hundred gigabytes, probably probably over five hundred gigabytes of of burp and and. Uh, Kaido files. Actually, I don't know that yes. I have all my Kaido stuff on it yet because Kaido just Kaido is so efficient with it um, that I can grep through, which is really handy. That's actually something I'm I want, I'm curious about too. Like, do you have any Kaido projects which are really big? Because I feel like around the five hundred thousand request mark, Burp is like really struggling, even opening and yeah. Let me look at this it. right now. I have a Kaido project. It's this one right here that is twenty two gigabytes. Um, and it's the same thing that is the is. Let me tell you how many requests are on it. Um, yeah, I was gonna say just roughly. Yeah, uh, three hundred and fifty thousand requests in the actual project, and then I've probably got I've got over two hundred, probably close to three hundred repeater tabs, and then like. 20 automate sessions, which is the equivalent of it, of intruder. Right. And the thing still works just like, you know, it, it did whenever I booted up Kaido, you know, for the first time with the exception of obviously searches are going to take a little bit longer and who knows, maybe they'll have optimized that with, um, you know, the next search patch or whatever, but. Yeah. Um, I, I hope they did build something to make it searchable, like in memory. I think that's one of the differences, if I'm not mistaken, with yeah. like Logger++ plus plus versus the normal search. Yeah. Like Logger++ plus plus would like to load everything into RAM. Oh my god. You know, that's not, yeah, that's yeah. not, that's not so. great. <laughs> that, that is real bad. Yeah, and I also just want to shout out the fact that when you asked me that, it took me less than 10 seconds to switch into that project and, you know, get in from the project that I had open and check their request count, which is just so beautiful. And my, my, uh, my workspaces in Kaido are so much cleaner because you can literally, it's like one click to change projects, no lag time. So really love that. Um, okay. okay. So technical shit. Yeah. Te technical shit. Yes. I'm sorry. We've yeah. been waiting, you know, it's an hour and a half in, I might actually add a little <laughs> disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. Um, you know, that, that a lot of the uh, technical shit will be, uh, you know, at the, you know, one hour 30 mark or whatever. Uh, yeah. It, it's funny. Do, but you, you, yeah, no. all the tips are great too. So, you know, those, those are technical as well. Um, yeah, dude, you can't, you can't leak my, my, uh, super <laughs> secret titles for the document that we have on this side of the, of the pod. I, I send him this document and there's two categories. It's like technical shit and personal shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we spent a little bit, a little bit long in the personal shit section. I should have just introduced you and then went right into the technical shit. But here we are, and we got some great tips along the way. So I'm, I'm happy with it. Um, so a part of my research for the technical shit section is um, going through every tweet you've ever tweeted and finding all the interesting stuff and uh, getting ready to talk about that. So 
you put out this tool, uh, hack a planet ten. Uh, no, it's it's hack the planet in Swedish. Can you say it? Hacka planeten. Yeah. I don't know, man. I have to learn Swedish someday. That's great. You own that domain, the .se domain, and uh, HTML parse in it. This is super awesome. So essentially, what it does, you go to this this thing here, you submit an HTML document, and then it runs DOM Purify on it. It and it puts it through all of these um, different server side HTML renderers and shows you the result. Um, so tell me why you did this and can you, well, first explain, you're looking for mutation XSS here, apparently. Why are you looking for mutation XSS and what is mutation XSS? Okay, so mutation XSS is like, if you take a payload and just give it to the browser, no, no alert box will pop, essentially. Mm -hmm. But if you put it through some Parser first, like even one that's inside of the browser itself, which is MXSS, like right. inner HTML uh, setting or uh, like the DOM parser, um, etc. And then it will essentially try to fix errors in, in the markup. And while inserting those fixes, it actually turns it into XSS, let's say. So, so if I'm understanding correctly, the browser or the, the sort of, I guess, DOM rendering engine, whatever it is. It could be mm -hmm. a server-side HTML parser, it could be a browser, it could be you know, some other modif modification within the browser. When yeah. you give it some HTML document that is not spec compliant typically, right? You know, yeah. It, yeah. It, it will look at this thing and say, okay, can't render this because it's not spec compliant. Let me see what I can do to fix it. And when it does yeah. that, it will inadvertently cause XSS. Is that right? Yeah. That's exactly right. It's a bug in the I'll fix your bad markup. Love, love that. Thank you for your help, uh, <laughs> browsers and DOM renders all around. We we love that you we can rely on you for this sort of thing. So so what was the motivation for this tool, man? What did you why did you build this and what yeah. kind of stuff have you been finding with it? Well, the motivation was it actually had nothing to do with XSS. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, well it was love like that. A, it was like a XML bug, but I knew they accepted. You, it was weird because you could send HTML to it instead of XML. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what parser they're using. Because there were certain, certain tags they wouldn't allow me to use, and I needed them to exploit stuff. Yeah. And I had this idea, like, I wonder if I can hide the tags from them somehow. But when it forwards it, it will actually be unhidden because uh, some other parser where it actually ends up after that uh, treats it in a different way. Mm. Uh, so I was like, okay, how, how surely there's some tool you can just spin up all of these things and you see like how does each parser parse it? Sure. And it's like, nope. And then standard moment in all its life. Oh man, someone should build this. I'm that someone. Uh, I guess I'm someone. <laughs> <laughs> So that's great, man. So you, you went and you built it. You took how many, geez, I mean, you press parse in here and it just keeps on going. So you've got like so 16 many or, or some, yeah, 16 a, parsers. A bunch of them. Wow, yeah. dude. How much of a pain in the and butt was that to, uh, to do? I mean, the biggest problem was uh, choosing whether I should implement 
like a whole uh, web stack for it or if I should make a, like a hack, which I ended up doing. Like, mm-hmm. do I need to make, have like a web server and a whole MVC framework mm-hmm. just to call this parsing function and see what it does? Uh, but instead do it, build it with Apache and uh, CGI actually, and then it will just run like uh, CLI version of the. Wow, so, very cool, man. Yeah, so that's, I took the shops about this actually, which way to do it in a, in a practical way. Because I'm like, it's going to take a long time if I'm going to have to build an actual application. Heck with yeah, all it this. is, dude. Um, oh, I see. So you you I, open sourced it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I did. And, uh, oh, it's got and a I Docker. Put, it's got, dude, I did not see this when I did the research. This, yeah. this, uh, no, each, each one of them is a, you know, its own. Docker container. No, dude. And then so okay. So you you've got it in a Docker container, and then you can literally just do echo your 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 DOM, pipe it yeah. into Docker exec, and then give it the name yeah. of the parser you want, and it'll yeah, just yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah, that's dude. That's this is so you can like fuss it through that if you like to, or you can use the the beautiful web interface this is really well <laughs> architected dude i'm really impressed nice nice work with this Thank you. do you have any um, yeah, so, so did you did you pop the xml thing or no i did i did and uh, like uh, because I, I managed to uh, hide tags with it because it parsed uh, um, html comments incorrectly ah. so it didn't recognize dash dash exclamation greater than as an end of a comment. Ah. But you can also like uh, Okay. If you if you use source on like only in Brun.se, that's like a I have put in like a combination of those things that I found for different parsers that we will like hide the content of the document. Oh up, up, so, at, up at the top there? Or that no what do you like um on just the homepage of of the yeah, if, you, SE? if you take, for example, just standard uh, 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 beautiful soup and HTML yeah, yeah. parser, and, and you try to scrape my site and like take the links, you cannot do it. No way. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's same with like floppy like uh, a couple of hours. But um, so yeah, that was like the second like interesting challenge I thought of uh, when building that. It's just like, hmm. I wonder if you can hide from, from from scrapers. Like, what implications could that have? Can't can't be good, the good old regex though. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. No, that's really cool though. I love that you built that in. That's like some serious hacker hacker shit right there. When you like make your own web, you implement this on your own website just for the kicks. Yeah, so that they can't, you know, pull your LinkedIn and your Twitter from avlidenbrun.se. <laughs> high value, high value links you've got there only for human eyes. Um, yeah, no, no, so I did find some stuff and I, uh, I've been thinking about implementing like X, the same with XML parsers too, too, because that's something that I, that I think uh, could have specific bugs too. And like, 100%. if someone wants a research area, pick a bunch of different standardized XML parsers, see how they treat like external book types or other type of XXE issues and play around with it. Because there was someone in the, in the <laughs> thinking 
podcast this, but mm. actually, I don't think yeah. they meant what I thought they meant. Uh, but they gave me an idea that, like, okay, maybe there's a parser that doesn't require the Docker declaration to be at the start of the document. And uh, I oh, I saw that conversation. That open, looked interesting. But but that would make XXC like a new type of XCC, I guess, which would be like ex- external doc type injection. So when you when you're injecting into the body of the XML document instead of yeah, controlling the whole thing. So I actually have a, a piece of research that I wanna say I don't remember whether I actually put it into the SAML episode for, for critical thinking, but there is a Chrome browser exploit that was yeah. a, a couple weeks ago, not the one that, that dropped in the critical thinking research, uh, oh. XCC one recently, um, where they were using XSLT transforms yeah. to do some crazy stuff with the placement of that entity you know, the doc type tag. Um, and so there essentially it was like, uh, it, it was using the parser to stick it up at the top. And on one, on the first parser, it would, it would not have it at the top and on the next one it would and then trigger the XXT. Um, so the other cool thing you can do with that is the XSLT transforms, which I am really excited to dive into deep more. I hope, I hope some of the listeners go and do this research because I, I'm, super swamped with stuff right now, but I would love to nice. see any research research on XSLT. Maybe I can nerd snipe you on it. Dude, the transforms are so cool. I've did, have you have you like learned at all about XSLT transforms? Yeah, yeah I found XSLT bug one and a half week ago. Oh my gosh, Actually. of course you have. All right, whatever, whatever, Matthias. All right. We're, but that means it was one and a half week ago, so it means I forgot everything. Yeah, your, t- your context window is gone. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great, man. So all right. Well, then, so you've actually done some more hands-on stuff with it than I have because I've just done mostly reading and ideating on it. Um, yeah. What but is I, your... I want, yeah, share, like, share that, a little bit about that, would you? I can share about that, but I just, it was a really interesting point that you brought up with this XSLT because XSLT is basically meant to like transform the incoming XML document to something else. Yeah. So It's pre-parsed. Transform it... You can transform it into something that now has an XSC in it. That's yeah. I guess that's what you meant. But it I is. Have to revisit it because it's awesome. That's great, man. <laughs> I can see. You know, he's for those of you that are are listening, not watching on YouTube. There's like this far off look in his eyes that is the the the, <laughs> the mark of of a, a bug forming. I can see it. That's great, man. I love that. Um, yeah. So but, but there's also a lot of stuff, or there are some different. A couple of different XSLT libraries, but you can do like file system stuff, yeah, uh, to and get like environment variables and stuff. So you can even do more stuff than with just normal XSLT. Yeah, hundred percent. And so, yeah, I'd like to normally before people come on the podcast, I message them and I say, hey, you know, check out this document, you know, that sort of thing, right? And then I also tell them, hey, bring a bug or two so that we can talk about it on the pod and I totally forgot to do that for you for this episode. So I'm sorry yeah, about that. We but can talk about that one. Yeah, can you I can guess. you give us some info on that? That'd be great. Uh, so that one was you could upload an XML okay. through a bunch of different hoops you had to jump through, but it ended with like you could provide an XML and then in another place you could provide an XSLT document. Mm. And the funny thing is 
the XSMT document is also specified as XML. Right. And that, that one was vulnerable to XSE, but I didn't find it because I tried it in the original document. That was not vulnerable. So then I was like, okay, XSMT, I'm going to learn it, XSMT specific bugs. And then, like, after I played with it and talked to Franz about it, he's like, but this is XSC. Freaking <laughs> Franz, was, dude. Shut up, Franz. Shut up, Franz. Like, why, why, <laughs> get out of here. Who invited you to this anyway? <laughs> but in other way, so one novel trick uh, that I learned with that was that I forget exactly what the operation was called, but there's like a couple of ways you can read files. And you can read JSON files with one operation. Uh, I can try and write it later and we can, we can link to this documentation. Yeah, that'd be and super you cool. Can write, or you, sorry, you can read XML documents, uh, but you can also read raw files. Yeah. But the problem is, uh, oh, this is connecting to the next part action of this secret document. Uh, you could also, in the parser, you weren't allowed to read read um, nullbytes into the the, ah. uh, the resulting document. Interesting. So you're like, oh, damn, can't read like Proxelf environment. Yeah. It's like separated with nulls. Uh, but what you could do is specify the encoding of, of the file. So what you could do is you could tell it, treat it as uh, uh, like UTF-16, for example. And then it would spit out like a bunch of Chinese characters. And then you could like transform that back. Um, and I knew that it was a Java application. So I could just use Hackworker and then know that it's like Java versus Java. Um, so I actually extracted like the environment via like reading the file as you did 16 and then turn it back. Dude, yeah. that is, you've been doing so much crazy char set stuff lately, man. That's, that's really yeah, cool uh, that you bypass that with that though. That's, that's an amazing idea. I like, I like, I suppose, type confusion bugs. Yeah. Uh, like it's a broad area. It is. They, they are my, one of my favorites. And encoding is like, I, I'm still not entirely sure. I, there is a blog post actually. I, I can link it to. Mm. It's like really old, like 2007 or something. Sure. And it's called something like everything you need to know about encodings and short sets as a developer. Okay. I need that. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it starts from the beginning. Like in the beginning, there was everything. And within that, there was the ASCII. And then, like, the high bytes was not used for anything. And then, so. <laughs> People started implementing whatever they wanted over like 0x80. And uh, that wasn't really standardized. But then IBM was like, okay, we all, take all of them and we give them each a code page number. So now when you see like a short set, it's like CP1234. Yeah. That's, that's the code page. Wow, so, dude, that's, that's cool, man. I would love to read that document. I think, that, I think a lot of our listeners would love to read that too. So I'll, um, we'll, I'll follow up with you after that and try to try to get that in the description. Yeah. Um, and, uh, like, encoding box is really, really, really interesting. Too. And yeah. also things like injecting like byte order mark to, to confuse. Uh, injecting what? Like byte order mark. Oh, so byte order mark. Tells, <clears throat> yeah, so you can use it in like UTF-16, for example, or like is this the like encoding? flip it around thing, like the left to right override? 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's like if it's little engine or big engine, it's like should the top byte come first or second? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So you're talking about like um like uh, UTF sixteen LE UTF sixteen B. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if you just say UTF sixteen, right, then it's ambiguous. Right. But you can start the the document or the string of strings. Yeah. With with like it is byte order mark, which like F E F F, I think for one of them and, and then, then it's like aha you're telling me to what coding it is uh, was, okay so hold on wait a second so you can actually put that in the data yeah what what yeah, yeah order mark by order dang dude i need a bigger notepad for this episode um byte order mark and, and so you can put that in the data and it will define how the rest of that data string is read? It, it should have to start with it. But I wouldn't be surprised if some people or some our interpreters and parsers could have it in the middle. Holy crap, that's amazing. That is that is super, I'm just kind of, yeah, now now I've got the thing in my, you know, I'm looking off into the into the distance and and ideating on on what what could become of that. That's that's really really interesting, dude. I'm definitely going to have to look into that after this. Um yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. I'm sure that'll result in a bunch of in a bunch of bugs. Um yeah, there's also some encodings that have special I don't think it's called byte order marks, but it's like special special sequence of characters that like transform it. So like in the middle of the document, you can have byte, blah, and blah. And then it comes it to like, okay, now it's this other way of interpreting it. And it ends with something else. So no way. Have, there is encodings where it's just like, okay, now it's standard ASCII, everything is fine. It's like, no, now it is not. Now it's this other thing. Dude, that is so interesting. So if you could get them to parse it with that char set, then you could really use that to bypass some con security controls because, you know, whatever parser will be looking at it and being like, okay, you know, this is just meaningless text. And then when the actual end, you know, program runs it, it's something completely different because it's it's actually parsing the char set differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if they have like a string complaints, for example, then it could be... Dude, this has got to be. They do, they, this was a topic too in the Discord I saw, like normalization. They can like transform it into yeah some other some well, other This is this is very and you know of course my mind goes directly to web servers and reverse proxies and WAFs and this is actually pretty much exactly what Sam Herb and I were talking about and, and I, I don't know if you saw it in the document but I I did a talk on this at DefCon um, on how you can define host headers for some. Uh, for some HTTP servers, and you can define them in different encodings, right? So literally our exploit for this bug was host, and this is a host header, host colon equals question mark ISO 8859-1 question mark Q, and then a bunch of hex data. And that actually got converted into our exploit on, on the, the back end of that um, server that we were talking to. It bypassed the Nginx uh, configuration that had some limits on the host header characters being used and allowed us to inject right into the Nginx config file on the back end because of the way that we could smuggle characters like a space and stuff like that into the host header. Um, and so now I'm thinking like, man, there's got to be even more possibilities of this sort of thing w with stuff that can change mid 
you know, mid, uh, mid flow and change into something else because maybe the Nginx proxy on the front end reads, decodes the character set, but the one on the back end doesn't and it doesn't normalize it. And then it just treats it like normal text. And then you can yeah. pop XSS or you can, you know, bypass any sort of filtering yeah, that there's in place. Yeah, but like, you also need to, you, when you're talking about XSS, you need either you need server-side normalization for it to transform because when you're sending, like if you're using your that's 16, for example, yeah. what you are actually sending is just two bytes. And, and if you want like uh, less than characters, those two bytes will be no byte and 3C. So if it filters 3C in like an 8-bit ASCII encoding, it will, it will go like, okay, is this a 3C, is this a 3C, no? Sure, 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 sure. Say yes. And the, so you either need normalization or you need some kind of encoding supported in the client that where like 003C or 003F means yeah. less than. I'm wondering if there's other... There's got to be other encodings besides, you know, UTF-8, UTF-16 that put those at different code points, right? In browsers? No, well, you know, and I linked actually, <laughs> funny you mentioned that, Matthias, because I did my homework for this episode. And if you click the first the first link under the character sets um, heading in the secret document, I have a, a link directly to the Chromium source code in all of the different um uh, character encodings that we, you know, that can be used in here. And I see one of them, you know, is this uh, ISO 8859-1 that I'm familiar, more familiar with from the, the DEF CON talk. And so I'm wondering if there's different ways, you know, or do any of these different encodings put a different, put the, you know, less than sign or greater than sign or whatever at a different code point so that if, if, if it, it bypasses the front end and says, okay, you know, the front end says, this is, uh, you know, a question mark, but the back end says, okay, I'm actually not reading this as, as, you know, windows dash one, you know, one, two, five, two. And actually I'm, I'm interpreting this as UTF eight or interpreting this as ASCII. And then, you know, you get the output as an actual script tag. Does that does that make sense, or am I thinking about this incorrectly? I mean, it's a good idea, but the, the ISO eight eight fifty nine. Yeah, it's is, different. Is the, no, it is ASCII based. No, no, I know, so I know. It, it's not what we're. It, it doesn't meet the standards of what we're we're looking at. Yeah, but yeah. but is there is something like that? And yes, unfortunately, I don't think that there is uh, any non ASCII supported chart sets for like HTML and dangerous content types in browsers. Ah, so, so the, the overlap... Yeah, they, they used to be. They used to be, yeah. Especially in, like, Internet of Core had some special cases. And, like, all of them, at some points, scored the UTF-7, so, which is just, like, 7-bit. Seven, seven so ASCII, ASCII would be... So the base for all of these is what you're saying. So yeah, the first ASCII 256 actually, characters of every single one, that 3C is always going to be the, mm -hmm. the angle bracket for, for XSS. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, ASCII is the... All the characters you need and punctuation for the English language. So it starts at 0x20 and stops at, at, at uh, 7, like small letter C. Yeah. At least that's how I learned in my room. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and oh, actually, speaking of, um, I was going to say this in the start, but one of the best ways um, to learn, I believe, is to be wrong. Yeah. So if I say something that is wrong, please tell me. Yeah. And also, 
like uh, trust but verify when it comes to people teaching you. That's like a super free way to learn. Heck yeah, dude. I love this. And I also love that you're in the CTVB Discord. I appreciate that, by the way. You know, I, people are asking questions in there all the time about stuff like, you know, XML and about, um, you know, uh, character sets or some of these more advanced topics, right? And you're in there, like, responding to questions and, like, getting nerd sniped by the, con <laughs> by the content, which I really, I, I definitely appreciate. And I, and I totally agree, man. Once again, Matthias, I think you'd like podcasting, man, because uh, I'm, I'm not, not not trying to, you know, drum drum me up some uh, bug bounty competition, uh, bug bounty podcast competition. But, you know, you, you're out there every week, you're talking for an hour and a half, you know, and you're and you're making mistakes and people are messaging you saying, hey, you messed this up and then you just get free correction, you know. Yeah. And if you're not taking yourself too seriously, you know, um, then it's great and you and you you learn so much so yeah we, we might have to uh you know get the matthias show started or or we might have to make you get get you on here on a regular basis maybe you'll be the uh uh joel is having some cat problems uh you know sub host in in the future um but yeah definitely yeah, be I, actually it reminds me of this uh what is, there's some late night show i think it's conan or some one of them where they have like special episodes where like the viewers can come on and like, hi, you were wrong about this because this and that. Like, that's an idea. Oh, just like a like, roast episode. Oh my gosh. Where, like, people can like point out, like, actually. Yeah. Dude, that's yeah. a great idea. I gotta. If you could stomach that. I gotta. No, 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 no. 100%. I've gotta. Um, I'm gonna write that down. I'm gonna try to make a uh, a channel in the, in the, in the uh, Discord, in the CTP podcast Discord of like, corrections <laughs> you know yeah. stuff justin said that was wrong and it's going to make me feel so bad but i'm going to learn so much that's a great idea dude um but yeah i would be really interested to see you know especially with some of these uh character sets that are oriented specifically towards other languages you know like the japanese um the iso uh 2022 jp uh character set or some of these other stuff what is actually you know if they're all ascii compliant or whether there's ways to represent different code points, you know, in different ways that are outside of ASCII's definitions, and still get an ASCII result back. Um, that would be that would be really interesting. And then also, but of course, you've got the the sort of normalization piece, which is often in place. You know, I've got the Japanese keyboard set up on my computer, uh, and and I always just switch it over to, to Japanese and drop in the uh, you know uh, the full width. Um, less than and, and greater than, um, you know, for the XSS stuff. And, and I've definitely had that pop quite a few times. Yeah, well, that can actually be a, an easy way to bypass the WAF too. Yeah. Like if the server side supports UTF-7, but the WAF doesn't just send it, that's Yeah, I want to say, was it, it... Was it Sarush? Uh... WAF wow. yeah. bypass, I think... That, that's, that's an underrated dude. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I would love to have him on the on the on the podcast sometime. I believe, yeah, I'll link it in the in the description as well for those of you guys that are listening, but Sarush um uh 
Dalili, sorry, Erstel is his, is his handle. I don't really know how to pronounce last names sometimes or first names in that regard, but I will link it in the description below. He has an article from 2018 on using character sets to bypass WAFs. And this is incredibly, um, incredibly applicable and uh, often used to bypass WAFs. And I also saw a tweet going around the other day. I'm not sure if you saw this from... Um, <clears throat> Jayesh, I think is his name. I don't know how to, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not sure, but he's been dropping a bunch of cool tips lately. And we talked about a couple of them on the pod. And one of the ones he did was a WAF bypass that just says, uh, content encoding as the header, as the HTTP header. And then it, the content is just WAF bypass. So essentially if there's any content encoding header, the WAF's like, ah, you know what? Actually, I don't know how to deal with that shit. I'm just going to pass it through and hope you figure it out. Uh, and I just thought that was hilarious. Like what kind of BS WAFs people are using. Yeah. It's, I mean, they have basically never been effective ex except for maybe specific automated attacks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. I, I think they ought to look at the, um, the WAFs should look at, or maybe they shouldn't look at, but uh, the Portswigger cheat sheets on like impossible XSS scenarios. Like, you know, if you can just block less, you know, left then bracket or less than bracket A through Z, then you're screwed, right? There's no way you can really get around that um, as far as HTML context injection goes, um, because that's just a part of the spec. You know, it has to be an alpha character, you know, coming right after it. So it's a bummer. Hopefully, someone will crack that one someday, because if they do, there's going to be a lot of XSSs popping left and right. Um, all right, man, let's see. We are at two hours already. <laughs> uh, let's, let's skip over some of this and talk about your favorite go-to vulnerabilities and stuff that you find yourself finding often. You know, if you had to profile, so a while ago, let, let me add some context to this question while you think about that. Um, a while ago, you released this uh, this dashboard with Franz, I believe, uh, Bounty Dash, and you know it would pull in before the the programs were doing this sort of thing. It would pull in all your reports and like categorize them and give you earnings, you know, per certain period of time, and you know what kind of severity vulns they were and that sort of thing. And vulnerability classes, I think, were included as well. Um, if you were to profile Matthias as a as a as a bug bounty hunter. What kind of stuff would be your bread and butter? What would be your go-to vulnerabilities that you often find? Mm. I often look for high or crit level stuff. So uh, it's always like context dependent, mm. depending on the organization. I almost always start with trying to understand what does the organization have what do they value protecting yeah so that i can then follow up with okay what are they protecting it with <laughs> and how is it supposed to work okay it's authentication authorization okay how is that supposed to be implemented just so that you can have in the back if you have like okay these are the things that they probably care about um but the specific bugs like i, I found about i i find a bunch of bugs on the way like exercises that just are obvious. Um, so you don't ignore but, those low or medium impact volumes in search of the highs or crits, but you... No, no, no. Like, why, yeah. why, why use Matthias in this field if I can just, like, use a bunch of quotes and some stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes me the same amount of time. Yep. 
But uh, yeah, I don't know. I like type confusion and I like different kinds of injections. And I also like like this uh, reverse proxy type of bugs mm. too. Reverse proxy types of bugs. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. How do you are you doing vhost level fuzzing for that? Is that the sort of thing you're talking about, or are you talking about secondary context path reversals? Or yeah, yeah, exactly secondary context stuff. Mm. Uh, One of the tips we've dropped like, before on the pod for mm -hmm. that sort of thing is you know traversing all the way back past the document route and then cutting off everything after will result in a 400 getting dropped on the status code. So with that, you can determine the document route on, on the backend server that you're, that you're traversing with. Do you have any other cool tips or tricks you can drop on secondary context bugs, identifying them and uh, exploiting them? Or is it just I mean, mostly a fuzz game? Because that, that, that is part of it, I know for sure. The, I mean, request smuggling is the same. Like, that's also a thing where you can get like the different applications in the chain to treat the request differently. Mm. Um, what else? Do you like, do you actively good... exploit request smuggling in these sort of scenarios on a let's say you know multiple times I, a year I, basis? You think? I don't automatically like scan for it or anything, yeah. but I will look at it if I sporadic. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. If I feel like it, I guess. Bad answer, but that's just intuition, I suppose. But also, like one one actual tip is, it's kind of fussy in the standard whether a hashtag or fragment character is allowed in a path or not. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times, what I see is that like the first load balancer or whatever is like, okay, that's just a part of the path. But then when it forwards it to the backend, the path is uh, cut off. So that's like another way if you can't, if you need a way to truncate the rest of the path, because maybe there's some reverse proxy match, uh, so you need to have the suffix. Yeah. So that's like a good tip. Yeah, using that, yeah. using the um, the query parameter, you know, the question mark as well, will get you that sometimes for sure. And that truncation is so helpful, man. Uh, one of the things I've struggled with, though. Let's see if you've got any thoughts on this. I, I don't know if you've, you've had this one. And I'm not sure there's a great solution to it, but there's this concept of like, okay, I'm injecting in the middle of a secondary context you know, situation, right? So I've got some text before and I've got some text after, right? Um, the text before, you can brute force by you know, path traversing, deleting it, and then brute forcing. And if it completes the request the way that you would anticipate that it should be completed, then you've identified the correct path there, right? Um, but on the right side, how can we, without some sort of verbose error, I struggle to enumerate what is on the right side of our injection point. Do, are you, you know, are, some kind of verbose error. Yeah, are you, are you tracking with me or, or no? Yeah, yeah Okay. we're still talking about like the, the path part. Yeah. Like the very first line of the request. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, one thing you could do is like, Try to make it extremely long, and then you can see maybe see like path uh, and then it just ends with that. Interesting. And like that's one way to do it. Another way you could do it is plus size inflation. Yeah, interesting. Uh yeah, and then it would drop back a what is it a four fourteen like a four fourteen status code I believe, which is like uh, 
yeah, URI too long response status code, right? So, and then you could use that to protect you, like potentially determine if you if you know the full path to the left, and you don't know the path to the right, you could at least get a character count at least probably on the yeah the, how, oh, much how much is much there by determining by inflating the size and then determining where you get the four fourteen status code. Yes. Huh. That's not what I meant, but that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when we get on these pods. We just kind of ideate and bounce off, bounce off of each other. That's good, though. I like that. Yeah, like the same thing with the like the query and stuff too. Like you can make a question mark and then put something you think is an invalid character, and it might spit back like query names cannot be named. Blah blah blah. Mm. So that's like another. Yeah, try to so so fuzz the path, fuzz the query, fuzz fuzz the query parameters themselves that you might be able to identify are getting parsed, right? Because those might throw a weird error. Inflate the request size. Also, yeah, okay. Yeah. You can also like throw a Hail Mary and try like SSR in it. Because sometimes there will be throw like, a what? Hail Mary. Oh, Hail Mary. No, 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 you're good. I, yes. I didn't hear it. You're good. It cut out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but like slash static slash blah goes to some other backend thing. Yeah. But then instead of stuck, they might have a bad rule. So you can do like slash static at example.com and then you, there would be like SSRF and, the, and you can look at uh, the logs. Interesting, and you. But I understand. I'm kind of cheating in your scenario. No, no, no. That that's great because let's say, for example, the the backend is like slash API slash, you know, bloody blah dot com or whatever, right? You 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 traverse back, you do, or no slash API, and then whatever path, and instead you put you you can delete the API, right part, and then write API again at whatever. And that will interesting. That's some, that's something I've always struggled with because I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if we could traverse all the way back up, and then, you know, make it a slash slash right and have it point to a different domain. It doesn't really make a lot of sense in a lot of scenarios, but in some normalization scenarios, I actually have popped that vulnerability before, which is insane. And I'll actually show you a a very impactful one I've got after this episode. Um, uh, but. Yeah, no, that's another great way to get around it is if you can figure out what that mapping might be, you can find some Nginx-style um, reverse proxy misconfigurations even on that back end and try to try to use those to hit different domains. Yeah, like here's another like Hail Mary trick. Yeah. That probably should, should never work, but I, I've seen it once at least. Wow. So, so the host header, I don't know if it's in spec, but usually they allow put port there. I think it's because you can have a port if you provide a full URI yeah. instead of like a relative in the yeah. get space HTTP. So a lot of the parsers are lenient for the web service or whatever with the port part of the host and port. So one time at least I've seen you can do like host example.com colon 80 at oblivion.com. No. Yeah. Dude, uh, you know what that? I want to say, who was it? Um, it was James Kettle, HTTP. Ah, I can't remember the name. It's like, like 
hitting practical the, uh, HTTP like whole header injections or something. Yeah, like it's like what what is the name of that research? It's like the untapped attack surface or like ah, I can't remember HTTP host oh header. No, 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 no. It's it's now it's not just practical HTTP host header attacks. I don't think which is the first one that comes up when I Google it. But there's there is. Um, there was because now he's got all of this stuff on ah exploiting HTTP's hidden attack surface. I think is the one that I was thinking oh, of yeah. a report or a, a um, talk he did back in I want to say it was 2017 or maybe even before that at uh, at DefCon um, has this very similar thing. And I know at the time you know if you were in the live hacking event scene, which I'm sure this is where, why you thought of this as well, people were destroying stuff on. Uh, on on Yahoo with this, it was like, like they, they, Yahoo must have paid out hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars in bounties from this specific vulnerability. Um, so hopefully you know, you've yeah. got that uh, fixed now, Yahoo. Oh, sorry about that. If I just uh, you know called out your 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 problems that are still active, but if you don't have it fixed by now, five years later, you're doing something wrong. So I, I want to. I want to give some motivation, actually, yeah. based on that. So Yahoo launched the program, what, 2012, yeah. 13? Yeah. yeah. 2019, I found an RC on the root main domain vehicle. So don't give up just because it's like, oh, this shit is so hard and, and whatever. In 2019? 19, yeah. Wow, dude. Yeah, so. There you go. That's that is many many years point. later. You know, people people fuss about this sort of thing all the time. Like, ah, you know, this program's been around for three years. Like, I got this private program invite. It's three years old. What was me? Many years yeah, later, like, seven eight like years that, later. Just go to any any company or do your do your job or something that has like put their stuff as open source. Look at the changelog and scroll back to. Whatever, and look how many changes there are. Like, of course, there will be. Yeah, I'm gonna send you. I'm gonna send you something after this as well. Um, there's this. There's this host right now that I'm. I'm working on, or that I've been working on, and Nogli finally convinced me to give it up. I guess. Um, but there's the version number says that it has patched this severe vulnerability that's at that at that specific version, right? If you see the version number in the HTTP response, it says, you know, version whatever, and it the vulnerability is patched at that at that version. But if you go into the GitHub history and you click the patch right before that, uh, before they fix the vulnerability, the commit right before that, it's a it's a change to the README for this. And it changes a uppercase H to a or a, a, a lowercase H to an uppercase H, and I hit that README file, and it's still a lowercase H, which means I know that they haven't actually patched that specific vulnerability yet, um, even though the version number aligns with the patched version. Um, and so I've been trying to build out this exploit. I had to rewrite it because of uh, HTTP HTTPS problem, and. Something isn't. Something isn't. The, the attack complexity might be too much in this scenario because it, there's some mitigating factors. But I might pass it to you anyway and see if I can nerd snipe you and get you to pop it. Because it'd be a 15k bug if we could. Um, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, man. Uh, but you know th that sort of thing. Looking at the change log, looking at the git commit history for open source software is yeah. super duper yeah. oh, important. Hey, hey. One more tip. Yeah. If they program your 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 
targeting yeah. as like an SDK. Mm. Oh my in gosh. Your in your automation, pull Git updates from the SDK, and then you get a feed of like, here's here something changed. And then like, you don't need crawling, you don't need scraping. It, they will just tell you, here, this changed. Yeah, dude. And the SDK is a very underestimated attack surface as well for a lot of companies as well. Uh, that's one thing that I didn't look at for years until freaking Ryotak, uh, the, the guy that won Vegas two years back, like just started because his whole thing is like source code review. He's just like literally a source code monster. And he just, you know, just He'll open up a page, right? This is this is how you know you're dealing with someone who's like a savant, right? Like he opens up a page and then he'll read the JavaScript from top to bottom, like not not jump around, not not trace the functions. He'll read it from top to bottom and then tell you what's happening with it. And I'm like, what? Like, like what, what is what are you? How? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, and he just destroys any SDK that he he works on, you know, on these programs because it's open source stuff, and he loves open source stuff. So, really amazing to see him work on that. Really inspiring for me to go after SDK related um, volumes, and then I found a bunch after that, which is really exciting. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely a great yeah, tip yeah, there as far as attack surface yeah. and as far as recon goes. Yeah, but also like another tip, I guess, is that modern development or if they have an SDK or something of the source, it's usually built with like, is it called test-driven development? I don't know. But it has, has a bunch of tests and, you, and a lot of times those have like security-related tests because they use the bug. Yeah. So that can be like a really good tip to like, oh, if you can just bypass one of these tests, you've got a free bug. So wow. That's like, that's an interesting. you a tip on marketing. Yeah, they they sort of say, okay, hey, this is what we've, this is how we've designed it to work, you know, and then you can look at at the holes from that perspective, and you know what not to try. That's that that is helpful, man. You know, Matthias, you have probably done one of the best jobs of of anyone on the podcast that we've had on of actually giving actionable, hands on advice and tips to people. I have it in my note notes right now. I'm going to have uh, some of the viewers play a drinking game of how many times Matthias says, here's a tip <laughs> during, during this episode. People are going to be like wasted as heck after that. That's, that's great. Yeah, but it's like, I listen to the podcast too. Yeah. So I, like, I want to contribute. So, that's great, man. So. I appreciate that. Um, so we're, we're, we're getting to the point where it gets way too long. Uh, but I do want to yep. want to have a conversation real quick about GraphQL. I think we'll skip Docker Escapes, which is the other thing that we were going to talk about, even though that yep. would be really, really interesting. Um, GraphQL so, stuff. Talk uh, to me about GraphQL stuff. What kind of stuff have you been popping with that recently? And what kind of stuff are you finding interesting? So I had this notion of or idea of uh, GraphQL just being like, it's the same thing to test like a uh, by the way, background. I started. I just started learning like more about GraphQL. Mm. But my previous sure. idea of it was like it's the same thing as the REST API, and if introspection is on, you get the documentation of the REST API. Basically, you get a big bunch of input arguments, and you can like put payloads in them and such. And that's for traditional vulnerabilities. But it turns out there's a lot more than that because you have a bunch of uh, not fields, what do they call them? Not models. Attributes? You have a bunch of 
What, what do you? Uh, whatever semantics. You have a bunch of operations, let's say. Mm -hmm. so they can be tweet types. They can be uh, query, yeah, query mutation, mutation, or a subscription. Yeah. And uh, the subscription one is also interesting. I, yeah, I want to pick and your brain about that actually. But go continue. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's a bunch of different like query names, for example. But those names can return an object that has a subquery in it. And this I didn't know. Yep. So it's like a really fun game of like, okay, I'm getting back this. Hmm. It has a field contacts, and in the contacts field, it actually has a like user contact contact type, and that one has a user. And ah, now I can get the users. Can I uh, map PI. all of these different yeah. types? You know, how can I follow this sort of train of of data? You know, to the actual data type that I want to get access to. Exactly. So that that's something I, I didn't know. Um, yeah, that's that's before. freaking amazing, man. I, I, I love embedding subqueries like that and trying to map it out. And and when it has introspection enabled, it's so much easier because you can put it through stuff like, you know, um, what is it? GraphQL. I, I forget what it's called, but you, you can paste the, the schema in there. I've got it in my bookmark somewhere. Um, and, it, and it will actually create like a, a graphical representation of it and you can say okay this type's linked to this type's linked to this type links to this type yeah. and actually i've there's like yeah i've had it sorry. before where they'll actually link like password reset tokens and like literal password hashes if you chain it you know to a point and then you ask for that specific field uh which is like nuts to me that they would that they would just expose their whole database like that yeah yeah no it's uh, it's a lot more complex than i thought it would be so, uh, so I'm I'm more familiar with the query and the mutation thing. Talk to me about yeah. the last one. Subscribe is it? Yeah, subscription. Subscriptions are like uh, how should you call it? Asynchronous queries or mutations. Okay. So you create a subscription, and then you have either a web socket or a multi-part mixed request. We didn't talk about like XSS channels, but they uses this, uh, and then you just have like an open socket and whenever something is answered or put into that subscription, whatever you ask for, you'll get paid about it. Wow, that's, that, is, uh, that is very, so that's very interesting. I did not know that, that, yeah. that it was using that multi-part thing that you had in your, in your challenge. I didn't so solve your hard okay. challenge, but that, that was that was. I don't challenging. think it's like, or I'm not sure if it's GraphQL standard, yeah. but like Apollo GraphQL. Yeah, called, yeah that's which, the one. Which is like, Almost, or like a normal Yeah, no, that's a lot. And and I, yeah, we meant I meant to kind of try to talk through actually that XSS challenge and kind of got lost in the whole um, content content type uh, description, but or the um, sorry char set description or uh, conversation we had. But I'll link it link it below the write up that you have uh, to this to this XSS challenge. You did a great job of actually writing up something at the end that explains all of the different techniques that you can use to, to do it. And there's one, um, the multi-part mix that you mentioned. I was on that trail, by the way, when I was trying to exploit it, but I just didn't have the time to get all the way through it. Um, very, very cool piece of functionality that essentially allows, if I understood it correctly, it allows them to almost sort of keep an it's almost like WebSockets, but for HTTP. And you can kind of like continue to stream data over time that, that have individual content documents within one long streamed HTTP response. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. Wow, what an interesting piece of uh, functionality there. And 
I, I have to imagine that the the impact of that is substantial in the context of things like uh, HTTP request smuggling and stuff like that too. So definitely some room for some cool research there for anybody who is into request smuggling and sort of server confusion, <laughs> confusing servers. Yeah, that's like if, if it's like one way you can do something with a response header injection, for example, or something like that for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, because then, huh, if you could redefine the content type, I wonder, uh, but you have to control the content type header the first time anyway to get it multi-part mixed because there's a lot of times where like you're injecting after the content type definition and that sort of thing and you can't override it. That's huh, interesting. I got to do I got to do some more research into that, man. There's there uh, my notepad is full. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I I I have my to-do list today and and it's like, you know, record podcast with Matthias and and you know, a couple other things. I was getting ready to check this one off the list, but when I check it off, I've got to add like seven additional items of like go research this and and document it and put it in thing. So, thank you very much for that, Matthias. Appreciate that, man. Um no, uh, seriously though, it's been a great episode and um Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge about all these different areas. And um, I, I hereby give you permission in the future to invite yourself back onto the pod whenever you have something interesting that in your technical context window so you can get it off your chest and give it to the world and, uh, and that we can all benefit from that, including your own memory, having had to put it into words. So that'll be helpful for everyone involved, I think. Awesome, man. That sounds great. Of course. Have a good one, man. Yeah.